Well, greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday nights at BBS Radio Station One. Thank you for joining us here tonight. I'd like to take a few moments to get into that heart space, and I hear that calling drum. As we call ourselves together, let's take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly, gently. Let go of that dross of the day. Go into your heart space. Gather with your guides, your guardians, your spirit teams, your ancestors, your healing teams, whoever you like to go with that drumbeat with into that dream time. (laughs) So there's a council fire here. It's in the center. So let's all gather around that council fire in that virtual way we know how to do. Coming close. As we call in those seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition. Welcome from the east, the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us, so that we may see all things in clarity. And we greet from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. We welcome from the West, the House of Transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. We greet from the South, House of the Eternal Sun. May right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary being. We welcome from above the house of paradise where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now.
and we greet from below the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmonies so that we might end war. We welcome from the center, source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. Ayam Hunaku Even Maya Imaho. Ayam Hunaku Even Maya Imaho. I am Hunaku Even Maya Imaho. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. Aho Motakuyasin, all my relations. And in Makashalakin, I am another you, you are another me. So, let's just stay wherever that drumbeat took you while I take a few moments to talk about the record of days in the Mayan. Record of days, the Zulkan. As we look at it today, it's today is the Blue Rhythmic Monkey Day, a six-chewing. So that monkey the, is about play, illusion, and magic in its sixth tone about balancing equality and organize. So the mantra for today, I organize in order to play, balancing illusion. I seal the process of magic with the rhythmic tone of equality. And I am guided by my own power doubled. So there you go. It's a dove. It's a, it's a devil monkey day, and we're working with a, a cult. Or <clears throat> the spirit guide for this evening is the white dog Ock. So we're working with that unconditional love, and as our spirit guide. And the ally today is Lamont, the yellow star, and the challenge teacher today is Imish, the Red Dragon. So, there you go. That's <laughs> that's the destiny chart for today. And let's look at chewing a little bit closer. It's an artist aspect, and it's about balancing work and play and paying attention to our clarity of mind and that wise use of magical artistry. So let's embrace these gifts of having that innocence and spontaneity, that ability to play and humor, and let go of any insensitivity or jadedness or any resistance to compassion or any mistrust as we embrace these energies today. We've got that double monkey energy going along, so we we got lots of magic to play with, lots of... <laughs> Lots of playtime. <laughs> so there you go. 
then moving on tomorrow is Saturday. It's a seven ebb, and it's a portal day, so it's got that extra dimensionality with it. The yellow resonant human, that seven tone, that resonant tone. It's um, in magical seven. So this is a healing aspect, the human. So that, and it's about the enlightenment of humankind and activating cosmic consciousness. It's about attuning to spirit and embracing that gift of being the human servant warrior, working with our abundance, the gift of abundance that we have, and that contact with the other dimensions, which is a portal day, should be easy to do that. <laughs> so let's let go of any dependence on the analytical mind on Saturday as we embrace these energies. And then moving on to Sunday, it's an 8-Ben, the Red Galactic Skywalker. And that galactic tone is that octave, it's that higher level of the Skywalker, which we went through the wave of the Skywalker. That 8-Tone always is representing the wave that we just went went through. We're in the wave of the niche right now, and that's about connecting with our past and doing that work of um, letting go of what no longer serves us in that way, in that dragon energy. Blaze that, blaze that dragon energy through this week, this wave that we're in. So this Skywalker is a warrior aspect. We're working with that galactic tone with it. So we're working with our focus and striving towards self-elimination and clarity. We embrace these gifts of strength and that ability to bend dimensions with the Skywalker energy. So let's let go of any resistance to base, any belief in aloneness as we embrace these energies on Saturday and then moving on to or this is Sunday, I'm sorry. Saturday's the uh is, is the human. So Sunday is the Skywalker. And then on Monday it's a nine each, the white solar wizard. So it's a visionary aspect and it's about illumination for others and and having clarity of mind and purpose. So we embrace the gifts of that being that Jaguar priest priestess and working with jaguar medicine, that shaman, and working with integrity and working in accordance with the divine will. As we let go of any control issues, any personal power issues, any manipulation, we embrace these energies. On Monday, with that nine tone, that solar tone, it's activating everything. <laughs> Three threes, lots of lots of movement. It's a very organic tone. So then on Tuesday it's a ten men, the blue planetary eagle, and the ten is the manifestation of all of our intentions. So all all that we've been working with is manifesting. This eagle energy is about that vision is a visionary aspect and it's about our commitment to service and seeing that big picture and seeing those details. So we're moving consciousness to source with this energy and reconnecting with all creation. As we embrace the gifts of independence and that belief in ourself, we let go of any feelings of despair, any dissociation or any illusion of separateness. 
So that's Tuesday, and moving on to Wednesday, it's an 11 key, the Yellow Spectral Warrior. It's also um, in the new, it's the new moon um, for most of the country, but in the Eastern time, it's at 11, 13 p.m., so in Eastern time, it's actually not till Thursday. So... <clears throat> But then all of Europe and all the other part of the world, it's going to be, <laughs> uh, yeah, then, see, it on Thursday as well. So, um, but here we are in this, in this time zone, um, it's happening on this spectral warrior day. So let's look at that a little bit. The spectral is about letting go of what no longer serves us, and that warrior aspect is showing us what's not serving us. <laughs> As we embrace this warrior energy, we trust in our journey, and we bring awareness of right action. <clears throat> and then we have these gifts of that communication with the divine and that access to cosmic consciousness. So we're we're listening and responding and letting go of any limitation or any restriction or any hesitation as we embrace these energies on this new moon. And then on Thursday, the new moon for the rest of us. <laughs> it's a portal day. It's the Earth Day as well because it's a Kaban, a 12 Kaban, so the red crystal Earth. And this is not just a new moon. It's also a solar eclipse. So we're setting this... Uh, Resetting their solar eclipse energy is going to reset us for the next six months between the two cycles of solar eclipses that we have. So, um, yeah, pay attention to the energies on these days and, and and embrace it. What we're our intentions are for this new moon solar eclipse. Um, so on Thursday it's a portal day. It's the 12, the crystal earth, and we're, we're moving into our crystal-based body. So we're going to embrace these, this healing aspect as we are the keeper of the earth, and we have that awareness of earth energy. We embrace these gifts of having that access to planetary harmony and being that balancing point. So use your intuition, listen, what does she need, what do you need to do, and let go of any separation, any failure to read the signs, or any dissociation. As we embrace these energy and this new solar cycle eclipse, um, and the new moon, a lot, a lot of power going on Wednesday and Thursday with these days. And then on Friday, when we come back, it's a 13 Etsna that completes this wave of Kimi, that linker of worlds. That's right. It's the wave of Kimi. I think I said it me earlier. I meant to say Kimi. <laughs> anyway, that 13 tone is the cosmic tone. So, uh, and it's not as the mirror. It's another warrior aspect. It's just when we work on our groundedness and which we need to do all the time, but this is definitely grounding. Uh, so it's that wise use of honesty and self-understanding, that mirror. So let's embrace these gifts of scrying the unseen and the fluidity and the persistence as we let go of any illusions of separateness, any fear, any abandonment, 
any illusions at all. So that's Friday, and we'll talk about it some more when we get back. So that's the week ahead in the Mayan record of days, as we are all record keepers. And so I'm going to change my hat as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen here. And each week we have um, bills for BBS radio that we need to keep up with, and we're behind a little this week. Uh, We need $241.25 to complete the week. And so, as that can happen in a good way, that'd be awesome. So we can get that off to them. And then next week, we need for BBS three hundred and sixteen dollars and twenty-five cents. So that's the biggie. The other bills look like they're pretty much taken care of, but there's a need for food and gas. And um, and I'm assuming, we didn't discuss it, but I imagine we still owe ET $496 uh, for the car repair and for buying the new spare tire that's required. So, um, so you can correct me if I'm wrong that that was paid, but we didn't talk about it. I'm imagining that has to happen. So let's, let's get our pennies together and, and do what we can to help out and, and, and know that this is a good way that we can participate in our own abundance. As we pay it forward, we pay it. We we bless our own abundance scale <laughs> in many folds. So it's a win-win situation. We're grateful for all your contributions. Here's how you make a contribution to BBS Radio to our account there. And uh, which all you need to do is go to bbsradio.com and you can see where the uh, schedule is. Click on the schedule for Radio Station 1, and you'll see this the Friday night show at the 8 o'clock hour. That's Central Time. And you also see on Thursdays at the 8 o'clock hour a, a night at the roundtable with the panel. So these two programs, the Hard News on Friday nights and the night at the roundtable with the panel, are both on Radio Station 1. As you click on the icon there that's on the menu, that takes us dire- takes you directly to our account with BBS Radio, where you can make that donation in any amount. So thank you for your generosity and your attention to this matter. We're so grateful for everyone's uh, participation in this part. So if you've not done it before, let's... It's a good habit to have. Any amount works, so just whatever your is yours to give, then thank you. Thank you for taking that action. And then on Saturday, program is at the one three thirty hour Central Time on Radio Station Two, and that that program um, is one thirty Pacific, three uh, four thirty Eastern on Saturday. So if you've not come and joined us on Radio Station 2. That's the place to do it at the time. And it's always a full day. So <laughs> lots of gratitude for all that Tara and Rama bring us and all the discussions that we have and uh, all that coming on board. So join us. And and you can 
click on that icon and make a donation there as you like. So there you go. That's how we all do it. Thank you for showing up that way. We're so grateful for you. And then we're also assisting Tar and Rama with their needs. And uh, as I said, they don't have bills uh, because they've got it coming in and there are donations. And they do need money for food and gas. They don't have any food. So they're drinking water, I hope. It's always good to do that when you're fasting. <laughs> and then you need money for gas as well. Gas prices are higher, I've noticed. I'm sure we all have. And uh, so it takes takes that to do it. And Rama goes out every day for his messages. And so we need to make sure he he can, has enough gas to get home and uh, go the next day. So thank you for taking uh, taking care of that, assisting them with their needs. We're grateful for all that they bring us. We're grateful for all, for all that you bring us. So thank you for all the ways you show up in your lives. And thank you for assisting Tara and Rama. Here's how we do it. You can go to the rainbowroundtable.net, and there on the homepage, click on that menu grid, and you'll see a donate link at the, near the bottom of that list. Click on that, and that links you to Rama's or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, and you can make that donation in any amount. And you can look on there for the heart, and that's the friends option. And as you click on that, you need to put in Rama's email to access that friends option. And that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-49 at hotmail.com. And as you're sending something, let Rama know um, that you sent something. And by the way, either way is perfect, whichever way you decide to do it. But we're grateful for all your contributions. And as you're sending something, let Rama know in that email for for Rama Koran K O R A N nine 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 at Comcast dot net. And uh yeah, tell him what you sent when you sent it so he knows when to expect it. And what else? Uh, yeah. If you need it, the mailing address is as follows Ram D. Berkowitz, R A M D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, the zip code 87567. I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So thank you, thank you, thank you. 13 thank yous in Honey in the Heart. We're so grateful. Ah, that you're here. <laughs> Grateful for we're, we are the ones we've been waiting for and many, many others. So we look at that each week as we do this work and include everybody. So 13 thank yous, honey, in the heart, long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick. And what's this talking stick doing this week? Oh, there's the Excalibur sort of truth. There's a lot of trickiness happening, and there's got the support of all the elementals, all the little people, all the fairies, and all the feathers, all the living life out there, the deer, the elk, the crows, 
<laughs> and so greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick with unicorns and dragons. Welcome. Greetings, everyone. And I'm just saying that miracles of abundance are upon us all. In the last moments here of this afternoon and this early evening, uh, we got commitments, uh, as Rainbird just let you know. They're on their way, and we're sending the fairies and the angels of quick delivery so that that deadlines for these bills will be met when they come on a timely manner. That being said, I just want to emphasize there's one food that's a liquid food that's really important that we keep in our diet, and it's called spirulina. Uh, And I would just make it a really high vibe suggestion as you want to have um, good vibrations, health and, uh, and also uh, it, it's, it, it, it uplifts the heart uh, so put spirulina on your list everybody <laughs> and send some uh, good contributions for that and Thank you, Rainbird, for your due diligence and keeping all of this in the housekeeping in such a good way and the power of that positive thought that never ends. Rainbird is a never-ending story of the power of the positive thought. <laughs> and thank you for that ancient Mayan wisdom that you bring to us all the time. And so where shall we go from here, Ron? Oh, I guess, yeah, why don't I pass the talking stick to you? Want to share what you told me? Because you had the direct experience today. Oh, I I spoke by text with Tom and Sweet Angelique and Larry, and they were at Glastonbury Tour. And they opened up a portal to call in, as you said, Rainbird, all the fairies and elves and dwarves and hobbits and all the elementals as spring is unfolding. And there are major solar flares going on, M-class, X-class, and... Oh, I could say that it hit me today quite well. (laughs) And um, just to stay in the high heart and work with the energies, it's a doozy. They are doing as much as they can to create chaos at this time with all the entrails that are ending. Oh, dear. Yeah. That was very good alliteration. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's the reality. When you're rubbing elbows with billionaires and 
Jeffrey Epstein and other stories out there that touch upon the current events that are going on. I'm speaking about Judge Clarence Thomas and his wife supporting Trump and the big, you know, <laughs> deep state. Uh, oh, and also Justice Thomas having this relationship with this Mr. Billionaire Harlan Crow, who bought property from Clarence Thomas, including uh, uh, a property where his mom, Clarence Thomas's mom, is still living. And then he renovated all this property, and in his name, of course. Uh, and then... Um, uh, it included uh, a Justice Thomas's childhood home, two vacant lots down the road for more than $133,000. And then Crow also bought the house immediately next door to Thomas's mother, which was owned by somebody else and had been known for parties and noise. And the big one is that Justice Thomas did not disclose this deal, these deals at all and did not, you know, report and pay what was necessary to pay in terms of taxes, blah, 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 whatever else. What did you want to say, Rama? Oh, I heard on Stephanie Miller this morning, uh, Francis and Angela the two black ladies brought it up that if you're a member of Congress and you have $30,000 in debt or more, you need to resign immediately because uh, you're violating somehow your oath of office. I don't know all the ins and outs. But How come they, you're violating your oath of office with $30,000 in debt? Because somehow it has to do with... Oh, the amount of money you get paid and you're uh, living beyond your means? Yeah. Well, it, then what about all these people on earth that the only way they get to eat is to borrow money until they can't anymore? I don't know where to go with this. This is where... This is called the entrails of the end. That's right. <laughs> Completing itself. So, Crow's purchases seem to have played a role in transforming the block. The billionaire eventually sold to new owners who built upscale modern homes. In other words, they put people out of their homes. And then they moved uh, the rich in and privatized it, I'm sure, and What's new, Pussycat? What else, Rama? Mm -hmm. I can just say that uh, the frequencies are really high and to breathe with the energies. Okay, I'm going to just play a little piece here. Um, this is Michael Mann. 
having a little chat with Tom Hartman. So let me just turn this up a bit. Okay, here we go. Oh. Sustainability in the media at the University of Pennsylvania is our old buddy, Dr. Michael Mann, the Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania, author of numerous books, most recently The New Climate War, Michael Mann with two N's.net is his website, his Twitter handle is Michael E. Mann with two N's. And uh, Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Uh, Fort Lauderdale just got 25 inches of rain in less than seven hours. Um, this is, I believe, unprecedented. Uh, we're, we're seeing wild tornadoes ripping up the Midwest and the South, areas that, you know, it appears that the bad weather, the, the historically bad weather, uh, tornado-wise anyway, that, that used to be in Kansas is now, you know, in, in Alabama and Georgia and Tennessee and Kentucky. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, first let me apologize. I'm wearing one of those shirts you're never supposed to wear for it. A video interview uh, finally checkered, and it's causing interference patterns on people's screens, I'm sure. Um, So, yeah, you know, this is just another example of something that we've been talking a lot about uh, in recent years. We're seeing uh, these far more extreme flooding events, and it's one of the most basic relationships in all of atmospheric science that tells us as you increase the warmth of the oceans, you increase the moisture in the atmosphere by about 7% for each degree Celsius of warming. Uh, that's a minimum. Uh, in fact, uh, there are studies that suggest it can be larger than that, for example, because storms become more powerful and they entrain more moisture into them. So it's not just that the atmosphere is moister, has more moisture in it as you warm it up, but also because you have these more intense storms. Um, so we're seeing that, whether it's uh, Pakistan uh, or uh, California or now uh, southern Florida, we're seeing these devastating extreme weather events, in particular these flooding events that have been made far more potent by the warming of the planet due to our ongoing carbon emissions. So uh, how much worse can it get and how quickly is that going to happen in your opinion? Yeah, so, you know, that that last point, our ongoing carbon emissions. As our carbon emissions, if, if they cease, the surface of the planet, the surface of the oceans stops warming up, the intensification of these storms, the increased flooding um, stabilizes. So uh, that's one of the most important findings in climate science over the last decade. We now understand that we have a carbon budget, that if we can keep the, the total emissions below some level, we can keep warming uh, below some level as well. And, and in particular, if we want to keep warming below three degrees Fahrenheit, we're going to start to see the worst consequences uh, of climate change. We need to lower carbon emissions by 50% this decade, uh, by 60% by 2035, and down to zero or net zero by the middle of the century. That's an uphill task, but it's doable. The obstacles aren't physics. They're not technology. They're politics at this point. Yeah, and it's not even even just purely politics. It's that we have an industry, that uh, a, a trillion-dollar industry, that buys politicians and buys media all over the world, is it not? That's right. It's, as I said, it's an uphill battle, uh, but we have you know, science and reason on our side and increasingly the voice of young, young people. Um, and that's changing the conversation, the youth climate movement. So I still have some optimism in large part because of young folks that that we will meet this moment we're having we're having you know 200 mile an hour tornadoes in the midwest 
Um, and in the southern states, uh, it, it, this is the new normal, is it not? The, the massive flooding in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, um, the, the, I, these, the, the insane violence of these storms. Um, yeah. it, it, is this the new normal? Well, it's a new reality, uh, but it's worse than a new normal, right? The, the new, uh, you know, new normal makes it sound like, okay, well, this is what we have to deal with now, and if we can just, you know, adapt to the changes that have happened, we'll be okay. But it's worse than that. Um, if we stop the warming, then things will stop stop getting worse, um, and we are still within the realm of our adaptive capacity. Um, if we don't sort of rein in our carbon emissions, if we continue with business as usual. All of this gets worse. The flooding gets worse. The hurricanes become more uh, extreme, more intense. Uh, you get larger uh, coastal flooding, larger um, storm surges on top of sea level rise from melting ice. And just this week, uh, there was a story you might have seen. The Gulf Coast is actually seeing faster sea level rise than m- much of the rest of the country, much of the rest of the world, in fact. And that has to do with a, a little bit of a surprise. It's something that we didn't really see coming. But it has to do with the way that ocean currents are changing and the loop current that's sort of part of the the ocean circulation pattern we sometimes call the ocean conveyor. There's sort of a loop of it that goes through the Gulf of Mexico, um, and that loop uh, current is warming up. Uh, That's adding to the expansion of the seawater. It's also creating an east-west sort of slope in the sea surface, and that has to do with complicated oceanographic physics I'm not going to get into. But what it means is they're seeing a faster rate of sea level rise than many other regions. And it's one of the surprises lurks in the greenhouse, and these aren't pleasant surprises. For many years, you were the uh, target of many of the, the, the fossil fuel industry uh, folks and their, and their shills. Um, uh, you know, I know that you've taken a lot of crap over the years because you've been fairly high profile and outspoken about the dangers of climate change. Is that softening? Are you finding that the trolls are, are losing their bite or or are they still coming after you and your and your colleagues in, in the science uh, world? Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, I wear that as a badge of honor, I would say. Um, and, you know, if they hadn't come after me and my colleagues uh, two decades ago when we published the, the hockey stick curve, I probably wouldn't be out, you know, talking about this with the public and trying to communicate the nature of the crisis um, to to the larger public and contributing to the, the, the public discourse about the greatest challenge we face as a civilization. So I feel privileged to be in that position. And I thank my detractors for helping me get into that position. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the battle in a sense is, has moved on. Um, it's what I call the new climate war. Uh, it was the you know the, the topic of my last book, uh, the title, which is the new climate war. And what it describes is the evolution of the tactics as climate change uh, inactivists, um, you know, fossil fuel interests, those who do their bidding, conservative uh, politicians and media outlets. They can't deny it's happening because it's obvious now to the person on the street. We can see the impacts of climate change playing out. So they've turned to various other tactics, stalling tactics, delay, uh, deflection, division, uh, even doom-mongering. If they can convince us it's too late to do anything, it potentially leads us down you know, a, a path of inaction. And so we have to recognize these new tactics that are being used um, because they are you know, the primary obstacle. They are really the only obstacle now that stands between us and meaningful climate action. Peru is experiencing a massive El Nino right now, at least from the satellite photos I've seen. Um, uh, explain to us what an El Nino is and why, why, the, why these extremes in these ocean currents. 
Yeah, so, you know, El Nino, in a sense, is a natural um, sort of mechanism in the climate system. It's been around for many thousands of years, um, and it has to do just with the, the way the ocean and the atmosphere interact with each other in the Pacific. It's sort of the weather of the climate. Weather happens on timescales of days, and it's random, and it's oscillatory. El Nino happens on timescales of several years, and it's random, and, and, and it's oscillatory. But we can change the characteristics of El Nino. We, we think that the characteristics of El Nino are changing because of climate change. Just how they are changing is still debated. But one very real possibility is that we will see larger extremes in the El Nino phenomenon. And so when you have an El Nino uh, event, the, the West Coast uh, tends to be very wet. You get um, those uh, pineapple expresses or bomb cyclones. You get all that uh, rainfall on the desert southwest and the uh, southwestern, uh, you know, in, in the, the sort of the coast of California. Um, and in the opposite phase, La Nina, you get drought in the western U.S. and you get more active hurricane seasons. So one possibility, regardless of whether, you know, we drift more in the overall direction of El Nino or the overall direction of La Nina, one very real possibility, and there's some modeling that supports this, is that the individual events themselves become larger. And with those larger El Nino and La Nina events come greater weather extremes. So that will add to the volatility that we're already seeing in our weather because of the basic impacts of climate change to start with. Yeah, it's it's, it's an extraordinary time to be alive and, and a lot of work that we all be, need to be doing. And you're one of the real champions of this. I highly recommend your, your latest book, The New Climate War. Uh, Dr. Martin Brown, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you. Great having you with us. Uh, we'll be back with uh, more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. It's 15 minutes past the hour. Stay with us. Okay, everybody, that was nice. We haven't seen or heard from Michael Mann for a while. Um, and so I wanted to mention another thing. We will write a request for the assistance and enumerate uh, the things. And uh, there's an opportunity there that Mike is going to be explaining on the request. And um, I just encourage everybody, um, of course, it's a free old choice. Yet, um, as you learn more about how this is working, um, it's unique. And the intention is to help people who have no money. And and they actually have the details about how you can do it. And it's, it's not the normal way of pyramid, nothing, nothing like that. And it's creating a flood of prosperity at the uh, economically impoverished level and, and moving from there. And that's something we are uh, connected with in the sense that the Sara law is creating uh, a leveling of the playing field. And so uh, there's a rule that those who have received their blessings, a lot of these wealthy visionaries have received their blessings, they may not give that money to us. Uh, they are being designated to um, help people that the empire has completely done unconscionable, disastrous 
horrific things. And they're doing it in, like, for instance, 63 million young women uh, on up, they don't get educated at all. That's just one example. And as you do not educate the woman and respect the woman who brings birth in new life into the earth, you have destroyed at the core uh, of, of life, which is called love. Want to say something to that? The circle of life. <laughs> the circle of life. Shall we play that song? <laughs> That's a great song. Yeah. We haven't played it for a while, but that would be cool. Yeah. So we will continue tonight. We're going to, I'm just going to see if I can remember this. Uh, Jim Hightower was saying something. Uh, he has just a little ditty and he says, my daily newspaper um, oh, what did he say? It has a case of... Oh, my daily newspaper is so emaciated. <laughs> uh, something to the effect it's maybe on life support or maybe they pulled the plug. <laughs> it's that bad in all seriousness. And what he was... You know, embellishing is the idea that um, we pretty much know that the system has no intention of helping people, except for a very small group of very wealthy that they want to make more wealthy. And then this example of what Mr. Justice Thomas is doing by uh, accepting these gifts from this wealthy billionaire. And so... Justice Thomas is doing him favors for in exchange for all these millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I'm just going to say they go to the Bohemian Grove every year for the last couple of decades on that dime. And they participate in the ritual of killing a female and having them for dinner. And that is what's going on. That's the reality of what's going on. And then they want to do this with the women. You know, Justice Thomas. Oh, let's reverse Roe v. Wade. That's this whole story. That's what this is. Oh, let's ban birth control, Mifepristone. There was a stay at the Supreme Court level, just allegating their time till next Wednesday. And let's just say, this is the time period we're watching it on the news. They're really saying, like, their own Republican Party are going against this thing. I mean, the percentage of is over half of the Republican Party that don't want this stuff. So that's a good thing. And so we're going to promote the divine feminine of the bringer of life to the earth. And so, Rama, let's have the conference call numbers. Um, 720-716-7301. 
and the pin code is 353863-POUND. Okay, let's let's see what we have to share together until we come back to BBS Radio at the top of this next hour. And this is the best radio there is. Uh, this is the best show in town. <laughs> so we'll see you at the conference, everyone. And uh, lots of love, and then we'll see you back here at BBS Radio. Namaste.
make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master, grant that men also mercy to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved. Precious Hearts, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Once again, the company of heaven is reiterating to us 
that we are in the midst of the greatest shift of consciousness ever to occur in the history of time. This shift is lifting all of humanity into a new level of awareness that will eventually result in transfiguring this sweet earth into a planet of love, oneness, peace, abundance, and joy. The level of unity consciousness we are now tapping into is reuniting us with our I am presence and healing our self-inflicted separation from our Father, Mother, God. The beings of light said this frequency of unity consciousness is actually the very essence of the oneness of our omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Father, Mother, God. Once this unprecedented shift into unity consciousness has been fully integrated into the conscious minds and emotional feeling worlds of humanity, every soul will realize that we can no longer rely on our mental perceptions or our logical thinking alone. Each person will clearly understand that we must now reach into the wisdom of our hearts and tap into the divine potential that holds the vision of who we truly are and why we are on earth during this cosmic moment of earth's ascension into the fifth dimension. The speed with which this unfolding shift into unity consciousness is occurring is a unique experiment that has never been attempted in any system of worlds. Because of that fact, we are receiving more assistance from the whole of creation than has ever been bestowed on a single planet. At this time, there are literally legions of light from suns beyond suns and galaxies beyond galaxies, focusing their light and love on Mother Earth. Every light being in the universe is pulling for us and assisting us the maximum that cosmic law will allow. The beings of light said that when we complete the victorious accomplishment of this experiment, we will have actually created a new octave of godhood. This will expand the light in every facet of life in the body of our omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Father, Mother, God. We are always the sum total of all of our experiences. So when we finally complete reversing the adverse effects of our painful fall from grace, all of our collective experiences will be recorded in the halls of knowledge in the inner realms. This means that our collective experiences, both good and bad, will be made available for every evolving son and daughter of God throughout the universe to learn from. Then our brothers and sisters 
will be able to witness the mutated thought forms of what happens when we use our creative faculties of thought and feeling in ways that are not based in love. With this knowledge, they will not make the same mistakes or fall into the depths of pain and suffering we inadvertently miscreated through our lack of awareness. For this reason, the entire universe is rejoicing and the beings of light are endeavoring to assist us in any way they can. At this very moment, the most powerful assistance being given to humanity is the perfectly balanced and elevated holy breath of our Father, Mother, God. Our breath is our direct connection to our God parents, the source of all that is. It is our life force. We take our first breath at birth and our last breath when we go through the process we refer to as death. With every miraculous holy breath we take, we are breathing in the most powerful frequency of our Mother God's comprehensive divine love and our Father God's divine will and power that we are capable of assimilating. With every breath we take, the comprehensive divine love of our Mother God and the divine will and power of our Father God permeates our cells, organs, glands, muscles, and the electrons, atoms, and subatomic particles and waves in our physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. This holy breath is creating an environment in which our I am presence is being quickened and exalted to take full dominion of our earthly bodies. As this occurs, the divine alchemy that is transfiguring our earthly bodies from carbon-based cells to fifth-dimensional crystalline solar light cells is being greatly accelerated. This is an individual process that is taking place within each person according to our ability to assimilate and integrate these unprecedented frequencies of God's light. Now, encoded with every newly balanced and elevated holy breath we take, there is a divine intelligence that is capable of discerning and revealing to each of us the experiences, beliefs, attitudes, fears, thoughts, feelings, words, and actions we are utilizing to support obsolete belief systems that conflict with the truth of our oneness with all life. This divine intelligence is exposing the illusion of our separation from God and any of our beliefs or actions that reflect a lack of reverence for all life. As the divine intelligence within the holy breath of our Father, Mother, God 
registers in our conscious minds, we begin to truly know that every human being is divine, regardless of how far his or her behavior patterns and life experiences may be from reflecting that truth. This is a vitally important realization in humanity's healing process. Our thoughts and feelings are creative, and whatever we focus our attention on, we empower and bring into form. If we are constantly thinking and talking about the negative belief patterns people are participating in, or the things that we don't like about the people themselves, we simply add our energy and power to the very things we dislike. This is true whether we are talking about our loved ones, our friends and coworkers, our associates and acquaintances, or our governmental officials and world leaders. Actually, the more powerful and influential a person is, the more crucial it is for us to empower their divine potential by focusing on their I am presence instead of the mistakes that they are making. We can empower and energize every soul's divine potential by focusing our attention on the divinity pulsating in their heart and by asking their I am presence to take control of their thoughts, words, actions, and feelings. Every person's I am presence will guide them to respond and behave in ways that reflect only the highest good for all concerned. Any behavior that does not reflect the highest good for all concerned is coming from the person's fragmented and fear-based fallen human ego. We can now empower a person's divine intelligence even further by asking their I am presence to expand this new divine intelligence within the balanced and elevated masculine and feminine holy breath of our Father, Mother, God that every person has access to now with every breath we take. Dear one, this week, as the Mother of Pearl Resurrection Flame continues to bless all life on earth, please focus on the sacred knowledge the Company of Heaven has shared with us today. Respond according to your heart's call by empowering the I Am Presence of our sisters and brothers in the family of humanity with your attention and your divine intentions. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week.
Hold on, everybody. Little moments. Coming, Robert. It's only a moment, everyone. Here we go. Hopefully. What's going on? We're talking to the electrons, just to everybody to know. <laughs> Greetings, dear ones. I am crying of magnetic service. There would be those who would wonder about the process to the degree they would say, impossible it is for a human being to switch this quickly from one side of the veil to the other, to be literally with one foot or the higher self. And I'll say this to you, the impossibility of it would only be there if the higher self did not want the human being to cross. You must know this, that as my partner spoke to you about the love of God, this is the way of it. For God is the parent energy, and this parent energy sees you in your and loves you in this fashion. We would give anything to void the rules of free choice, to show ourselves in a fashion that, that made you understand we're here. But on this planet of free choice, it is you who must open the door to us. We stand like the angels we are in your lives, walking the whole duration. At the point at which you are born on this planet, the angels surround the table or they surround the pool or they surround whatever it is that you have chosen to come in. And they stay with you. In those beginning weeks, you might see the infant with the wide eyes looking at the angels. The infant will point. Sometimes the infant will, will even smile, even in two weeks, three weeks. Because the infant recognizes us. All of you did it. All of you did it. 
indeed in those early days where there is so much change in those early days when there's so much to get used to and there's so much shift being out of the womb the angels are a comfort to the infant and you all were there and slowly that reality slips from you slowly but all of you have seen it when the infant looks into what you call pleased with what they see these are the same angels they don't age you do that have been with you all your lives they walk beside you they came in with you they'll leave with you and if you never speak to them they will say nothing but that is the agreement but oh dear human being if you just give us one little space of intent and you say dear god show me that that i'm loved you open the floodgate for this is when we enter your life to the degree you will allow us this is when we will give you what you ask for begin the synchronicity begin the teaching begin the hand holding so there is no more being alone fill you up to such a degree that you will not be concerned with disease or age or drama and all you will see is the promise of who you are this has always been the way of it since the day we began there are still those who wonder about the process this process of channeling it works when the channeler is clear it works when the bias is set aside it is the way of it and has always been the way of it all scripture on the planet written by men take a look at how this works human being for you by yourselves are responsible for all the prophecy for all the good things that you would find in those words that comfort you you say are from god all written by men and women and so it is again that we come before you with information the information given for those who are in the room in what you would call real time for those who are listening and hearing in what you call your future know this all of the information i give has at some point we have never given you this synopsis for we are starting to summarize subjects for simplicity for clarity so that they begin to be less obtuse so they become more present in your reality plain speaking and plain words are the call of the day but we don't want to start yet how many of you in here are aware of what is also in here <laughs> 
Let the energy of this moment not be lost upon you, for this is real. What you hear here is not a human being pretending to channel. Let those in this place who are astute and who sense the energy of spirit look upon him now and see the colors that would betray the fact that this is actually happening. Feel the energy of spirit as it comes to you in a way that only spirit can to prove to you that this is real. Feel those you've loved and lost in the room now. And this will show you what is happening at this moment is as it seems. This is the gift. From our standpoint, the gift is that you would sit and let us wash your feet. And while my partner gives you information, the third language will be present in all the hearts here. And some of those who are listening will be touched as well. For we know who you are as your ears hear these words. For we see you there as well. Let the information given today be passed to many. This information we are going to call the lineage of DNA. From the start of DNA to today. The way it occurred on the planet, the way it works, and all of the things that you need to know around it to get you to the place where you can use it. And we must start where my partner started even today in his lecture series. For much of this is as he mentioned. But for those who are not here, we start at the beginning. We start with history. Question has been asked, Cryon, why is it you speak of DNA? It is a biological attribute of the human body. It is the, is the blueprint for the human genome. It writes all of the genes, over 30,000 of them. Why would you speak of this? You don't speak of molecular substances. You don't speak of chemistry. Why would you speak of DNA? Instead, speak to us about spiritual things. It has been said. The criticism has been put forward. The disappointment is registered. And there are those who don't understand why we speak of DNA. So let me tell you, dear one, if you were one of those, it is time to reveal your DNA is that which is the core element of who you are. If you had to pick a place where the higher self is, it's in your DNA. The Akashic record, the blueprint of everything you ever were is there. All of the lifetimes, all of your spiritual growth, all of your talents are there. The karma that you came in with and that many of you have dismissed, the record of that is there. Some of you understand this 
to the degree that you know you were a Lemurian. And if you were, and if you feel this way, you know of the incredible profundity of what's inside. That is the reason we speak of these things. And it's only been in the last few years that science has given you the proof of what we are going to speak of now. We have alluded to this in the past. I will just say it straight out. Your DNA is over three billion chemicals strong. Each piece of DNA, which is a loop, has over three billion chemicals in it. A molecule so small that you need an electron microscope to see it has three billion parts. The Human Genome Project has revealed, however, that these parts are a mystery. And that only 3% do anything. And those 3% of protein encoded portion of the DNA chemistry produce over 30,000 human genes. It is the blueprint that you were looking for, but only 3% did anything. Over 90%, therefore, and the mystery continues for there is no symmetry within the 90% of the chemistry. You can see no codes. It seems a random event has occurred and some have called it junk. Some chemists are convinced that DNA is left over from the evolutionary process and is no longer used by the human being because there is no pattern. There is no code. It does nothing. The rest of you know better. Revolution and Mother Nature and Gaia all together are very efficient when it comes to human biology and to life in general, whether it's photosynthesis all the way to the human genome. They throw away things that are not used. It is not junk. I will tell you what it is. And in the revelation, yet again, I want you to ponder what it could mean. And that is this 90% of your DNA is literally the quantum blueprint of your divinity. It is the quantum blueprint of your Akash. It is the record of all lifetimes, all things accomplished, all growth, all epiphany, all failure. For those of you who call yourselves Laborians, it represents a vast amount of experience on the planet. Vast. All the way from the beginning, which we are going to speak of. Therefore, it is important that we speak of DNA. When 90% of it is literally the pattern which drives the 3%. Think of it this way. 3% of DNA is the engine of the vehicle you ride in. 90% are the instructions for the engine. <laughs> and in that 90%, dear ones, 
I would like to tell you is human consciousness. And in human consciousness, there is your ability to talk to it, to control it, to work with it. One of the first things we ever told you is that humans are in charge of humans. They're in charge of the earth. Consciousness moves the earth. Consciousness is what is responsible for the vibration of the planet. And you have always, through human consciousness, been able to speak to your own DNA through the 90% which is quantum. Human thought is quantum. So there is the workings of it spoken in a clear fashion. And it's only because of the development of the human genome and the revelation of the 90% that seems to do nothing that we can speak now of what it really does. And it's going to make sense to science at some point in time. When they take a look at that 90% and they don't see it as coding, but they see it as engrams. As ways of sending modifiers to the 3%, which is the engine. There's a problem, however. <laughs> it doesn't work well. Your cellular structure is weak. It does not represent what was given to you. Your immune system is horrible. Almost every disease on the planet goes right around it. Did you notice? You can't even stop a common cold. Ninety percent of your DNA developed into a way to give instructions to the three percent, and yet the three percent can't do its job. And there's a problem here, you might say, and there is. For the 90% of your DNA that's supposed to be quantum is only at a 30% efficacy rate. That is to say, it's only 30% efficient. And we gave you that information sometime. I'll give you the things we said then. Just briefly, I'll say this. How does it make you feel to know that you could have cancer in your system and your body will never tell you? You've got to go to another human and have a test to find out what your body is doing. What kind of a system is that? The self-diagnostics that have been built into the human being doesn't work. When a nerve is severed in your, in your spinal cord, there's a chemistry that races to that area and keeps them from growing back together. Did you know that? Just the opposite of what you want. Starfish can grow back an arm. You can't. How does that feel being the top of the evolutionary ladder? It's because there is a DNA that is not functioning as it should. If you ever wondered about that, this is the fact. It does not function as it should. Let me take you back to the beginning. And here it is laid out so that anyone can see it and hear it and all of the attributes of it. You need to hear it 100,000 years ago. 
There were up to 17 kinds of human beings in development, just like the variety of nature would call for regarding some of the other mammals. Just like there are hundreds of kinds of monkeys, just like there's a tremendous variety in so many men's animals, but not in the human being, but there was then. Go back with me a hundred thousand years, you'll see that documented. And then it happened. And some of you hearing this are not going to like this. This was the lecture of today. I give it to you again for not all of you were here. Listen. A beautiful thing happened. Something happened by design. You were waiting for it when you were creating the planet, dear ones, when you were with me watching it cool down. You knew this would happen. In the Milky Way, you have what you have called the seven sisters, seven stars, one of whom has a planetary arrangement around it. And you have called this arrangement and those coming from it, the Pleiadians. And these are the ones who visited Earth 100,000 years, years ago, and it didn't take them very long to get here. And the reason it did not is because this is a race that is quantum. That is to say, there is no time, there is no space, there is no distance. They willed themselves here and they appeared. It is an advanced race that is spiritual. It is graduate in nature. It is mature. It is beautiful. All of these things on purpose and those who came changed the DNA of one kind of human being of the 17. They stayed for as long as it took. You should know that this took over 1,000 years. Slowly, all of the other kinds of human beings dropped away. Only one was left, the kind that was changed. The DNA was being altered. And this is altered. And this is the creation story given to you on purpose in a beautiful way by spirit. It was an anointed time. And I would like to tell you, souls who are here long before Lemuria, when you looked upon this and you saw it and you knew it was good. The Pleiadian brothers and sisters look like you. <laughs> they do not have lizard skins. They do not have strange arms and legs. They're a bit taller but they look like you. And there'll come a day when it's proper and correct and appropriate when they show themselves, not in your lifetime. But when they do, they're gonna look just like you. And you will know that what I say here is accurate and true, for they are watching as I give this message. They are smiling. With the appropriateness of this message, listen to me, there is no conspiracy here. No one did anything to earth, to humanity. There is no control issue here. By design, on purpose, spirit allowed them by invitation 
for this purpose. The only planet of free choice moved from the Pleiadians to this solar system. And Earth, literally, spiritually, was born. It's controversial. And those listening now don't have to believe this. It is not critical to having your light shine on earth for this to be understood, but it is the truth. And if you wish to know where the seed biology came from, from I just gave you that. But there are still those who wish to go with the mythology that God came and all at once presented a system to the planet. They would rather go with that. As my partner says, they like the talking snake story. <laughs> But that's not how it worked. Slowly, the first civilization on the planet was born. And it was called Lemuria. And it was not an advanced civilization in the way you think advanced. But they had something you should know about. Their DNA was at 90%, <laughs> not 30 all the quantumness of their DNA was activated for that is what the Pleiadians passed to them. The oldest civilization on the planet, the one that was the most long-lasting that never had a war, was Lemuria. Broken up only because the oceans of the sea rose. They became seafaring as they had to be and always were. And moved to the edges of the Pacific Rim. They were the original society on the planet. They were the, the beginning. On the top of the mountain of the biggest island of Hawaii is where the canoes are buried. And they will tell you that in the lineage of Hawaii. The Pleiadians came there. That's where they landed first. That's where they began their work. Lemuria celebrated that. For they knew in their DNA all about the solar system. Did you understand that a quantum DNA working at 90% creates a consciousness that is one with the universe? The most ancient of spiritual beliefs on the planet asks you to be one with everything. It's not an accident. I'll get to that in a moment. The remnants of Lemuria are gone, covered by water a long time ago. You're not going to have proof of this, not physically, only if you go there <laughs> and you ask what is happening and the ancestors will come to you and answer and say, welcome home. It is controversy. It is not understood, it is not seen, history does not report it. Lemuria existed. Do not place so much, much later, and there were three of them. Which one do you want to talk about? They did not play near the role that there those in metaphysics wish to assign upon it. Oh, it was important. One of them was so recent off 
the Greek Isles. It's even reported within the, the history that you see. Humans have a dramatic interest in civilizations that get destroyed. <laughs> Prompted you to look there, to consider it perhaps one of the first, one of the most advanced. It wasn't, and it wasn't. Lemuria was. Cast your eyes upon that if you want to see. It was not an advanced society. It had no technical abilities at all. It knew how to heal with magnetics. It was in their DNA. You see, quantum DNA produces information, being one with the universe. They knew all about DNA, doesn't everyone? That's what a quantum DNA does. Right from the Pleiadians. The Lemurians knew much. They knew all about the solar system. They knew about the galaxy in general. They looked at the stars and understood what was there. Now, long after the Lemurians were gone, thousands of years, the ancients still had it. What you call today the beginning of civilization, which you don't even give credibility to, is thirty thousand years, forty thousand years, maybe not even ten. That'll change. You lose as the ancients, and I tell you, they knew about the stars. They knew about the galactic alignment coming. They knew about what is here. They knew about all of these things. This galactic alignment. Which we say here is coming, we teach has already begun. Do the math, and you will find that you are sitting in the energy of this galactic alignment—a twenty-six thousand-year cycle that the ancients knew about. They still had DNA that was working in a quantum way, without telescopes or computers. They knew. They knew about the solar system and all of these things. And so I ask you now, what happens? And so we reveal that that you slid backwards, and you know you did. For free choice is honored. The splitting of Lemuria and the fragmenting of human society creates many ways that you might have said opportunities of losing. What was a collective consciousness, and you did. And in this process, the DNA that used to be at a 90% level was reduced slowly back to 30. It's what you have today, and literally you started over. You did not have that quantum feeling, that knowledge, that intuition. You didn't know where your 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 seeds came from. The Pleiadian experience was gone, was lost. Humans didn't understand astronomy. Humans didn't even think the Earth was round. Think the Earth was round. It went away, almost like a reboot, a start over, for all of you. And you pulled yourself up to where you are today, and I'm going to tell you what is different today. And with this, we almost are done. The lineage of DNA goes from a precious creation.
that was appropriate and accurate and true and not conspiratorial. No matter what any will tell you on purpose, anointed and sacred. To a place today where it is beginning to be seen that way. And in that, the activation of your DNA is that which means you are beginning to increase it in a quantum fashion. There will be pieces and parts of the quantumness with the quantumness which can be activated before the other. You sit in a shift, you sit in a, an age you call new age, and it isn't. It is a remembrance of the ancients. It is a return to a Lemurian state. And it's about time. This is what you call the new energy. The shift is upon you and you begin to work with the DNA like the Lemurians did. Oh, human being, listen to me. This is the crux of why you're here. It is what we teach in this day. That the DNA, that quantum sacred part of you, is laying there ready to be enhanced with intent. And all that I brought in magnetic service to you was to serve magnetic service to you was to service this planet in a way that the magnetics could then talk to your DNA and return you to a state at which you deserve. The Mayans spoke of it. This is the highest vibration that Gaia has ever seen. You sit in the ramp up of it. Bring human consciousness to match that vibration and your DNA will start to, to increase in its efficiency. You're going to start to see it in many ways and we've spoken of this as well. Go see these channelings where we told you there are some signs coming to show you that human are evolving and that evolvement process starting with the indigo children is about how much of the quantum DNA they are using and the more you use the less linear you're going to become the more conceptual you will be this is what you're doing Here's something we've not spoken of before. The Lemurians lived a very long time. Self-diagnostics in the DNA created a human cellular structure which actually repaired itself. I'll tell you something that you would never ever have expected. The Lemurian could grow back a limb. And I'm telling you, There'll come a time when you can too. And it won't be through modern medicine. It's going to be through thought, activation, consciousness. Know this, that you bring slowly. It was designed for today. It is time for you to return to the quantum state, which is the spiritual state. And it starts now. You fight a battle on the earth between old and new energy, and the new energy is winning. Make no mistake that the old energy 
will be with you for some time. And it's going to create issues with you. As you clean up your economy. And you're not done. You will see the ways of a new paradigm of being. Of structuring. And it's going to take some time. Do not fear what it will do. For it will emerge just like you knew it would emerge. One of the strongest on earth. Filled with integrity. A new paradigm that makes sense for a new age. Count on that. All part of a human evolvement in consciousness that you can see in your DNA. Crying is is the scientist going to be able to put this under a microscope and see it? No. Because the microscope is 3D. So I say to the scientist this, what I've said before, when you develop the quantum lens, you will see it. For you will actually see the chemistry in the 90% of DNA will glow under the influence of the quantumness. And you will know I'm right. And it will change colors with the activation and you will be able to see it. But at the moment, you have no quantum lens. There is not any device, not any device for measuring the quantumness of the universe that exists on the planet. But you're getting close. When you do, the revelation will be in your biology. These are the things we wish to bring you today. These are the things of the teaching. And all through that, we've been hugging you. Why do we bring these things to you to tell you, dear human being, that you have come full circle? You wouldn't have missed this. Dear human being, for those, listen to me. I know you. There will be a certain percentage of those in these next years who will come see me. There will be a transition, a life's transition. And when that occurs, know in all appropriateness how beautiful it is. An old soul, it's something you've done so many times you can't even count. And you will come back and you will come back because you're not going to miss this. This is the shift you've asked for, you've waited for, and you're going to be born with a higher level of DNA efficacy than you'd left with. Watch these children develop even into a more frustrating group than they are now. And some of them will be you when you return. I wouldn't say these things unless they were accurate and true. See the clarity of the channel today. Feel in your own innate sense the truth of it all. And be aware that you are dearly loved. It is the reason we are here. We collect the bowls metaphorically of the tears we shed as we wash your feet we invite you to carry on this energy of spirit 
let it sit with you for a moment before you rise and leave. Let it be known that this day, spirit really was here to meet the brother and the sister, to wash your feet with our tears and to love you like we are. And so it is. We are all servants of peace, everyone. Yes, Tigger. We are all servants of peace. <laughs> and Mother, your Pashat friend here is calling you in. Greetings. <laughs> in the light. In the light of, of the most radiant one. In the office of the Christ. And only in the office of the Christ, we invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and the Violet. We ask at this time that everyone have a wonderful, uh, nourishing, happy life filled with divine compassion and uh, love and service to the world. And we also called in that there is enough of all time, love, energy, air to breathe for everyone. And we talk the, the story of love and we walk the story of love and we be love only love and I pass this talking stick to you mother of all that is here it comes greetings children of Ra We live in most auspicious times.
very awesome to behold what's happening as the energies moving so much higher and the dark getting exposed. Hmm. It's a good time to be alive. ways as this light pouring in at this time in northern hemisphere It is 
our best interest to say as we all get to meet and greet each other many of our ways may seem strange or foreign it is high time we get over who looks like what and who interesting cosmic dance as we move through these cycles of tremendous change. These ideas that men in so-called positions of power tell the goddess what to do with her body. I mean, what else would it be? This is very interesting, you know, the circle of life, mother. Yes, in the circle of life, there is that cosmic logic. We could say that everything knows itself within creation. It is an awesome time to behold. Approaching the next mm, comets, eclipses, this upcoming solar eclipse. quite a big deal.
to see all of heaven stepping in here. Mother, I think it's time for this. I mean, we're watching it. We're feeling it. It is happening. The dark side's not. No, no, they've already lost. Yes. They're not quite sure what to do about it, are they? No. The light needs to know how to do it with love, too. Yes, it has been many eons since we've been in this current position of mm, everything being laid out in lavender of how to ascend the all the cards are on the table mm. it is simply about love and the dark side they know it's it's time as you say we'd like to let everyone know this flash story has happen in the past. What story is that, Mother? Cosmic Flash. Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're patient, aren't we? Indeed. <laughs> Always. There's a preparation time. That's now. It is getting these temples ready. As well as this, this realm, as things unfold in divine right timing, cannot give a date, yet we can say it is. You're experiencing it. All in the mix. As what comes to mind is this 
first contact, full disclosure, ah. the people of Earth have never been alone in the universe. And so many stories about so many different ways of how things are done in the process of coming together in unity consciousness whether we look alike or look different diversity is an opportunity for magic to happen mm -hmm. this is the order of the day. Magic and miracles are unfolding. Mm. It is this circle of life we speak of that is coming into play here as more is brought into focus peace and joy are natural order of events as civilizations evolve into higher states of consciousness mm -hmm. And what is happening right now on this planet is this quantum leap in consciousness as the old falls away. It's a big deal. And at the same moment, same breath, can't happen soon enough for so many. Mm -hmm. How we can best sum it up before and after enlightenment chop would carry water. Mm -hmm. It's how we move the energies. Mm -hmm. It may not sound fancy or glorious. It just is what it is. Mm -hmm. <coughs> In of itself to be here at this time, it is a gift of tremendous 
we have no words. Crying took it all, so to speak. No, you must play the hard news. Listen with the ears of compassion, kindness with what's happening. Release Thank you, in the light, in the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, 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 Adonai Sabayo. Kadosh, 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 Adonai Sabayo. Kadosh, Kadosh, Yo hey, oh hey, Yama Adonai Basu Paragas Namaste, Mother Aloha. Now is the time for peace. <laughs> now is the time. Momentito, as I say. Hello. Hello. Rama. Yes. Where did you go? What's your adventure this evening? Oh, I was... I was on the New Jerusalem in a cargo bay listening to the conversations going on. What was going on in the cargo bay? Moving lots of different equipment about. What kind of equipment? Technology that is to be brought to the planet to help lift us higher. Oh. And to. Has this got anything to do with the cash technology? Hmm. I would say it has to do with bringing natural functions into balance. Technology that I I could say has to do with cleaning the oceans at this time. 
because the oceans so the oceans of light. Absolutely. As we don't have the oceans. Um, Three quarters of the planet is uh, in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Priority one. <laughs> well, um, it certainly feels like the uh, statements have been made, um, what Michael Mann had to say. Yeah. And we are in no compromising uh, uh, at all here. It's 100% renewable. Fossil fuels have no place at this present time on this planet. There are many other ways to move about and and the entire old system is based on them. And adios. We can fly. We used to be able to do that. It's time. <laughs> I know. I just know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I had the experience of levitation. Yes. That magician used to do it for real, too. What was his name? He used to do magic shows all over the world. Oh. Oh, I forgot his name. He literally could, you know, lift himself right up in the air. Nothing behind him, nothing holding him up at all. I forget his name. Mm. Yeah. Well, are we ready to levitate now? I hope so. okay so we're gonna switch a few gears here I'm gonna start with something that uh, is right before it was uh, democracy now from a section of democracy it's about 37 minutes but we're gonna play it Uh, we're just gonna stop the button here on a part of it. We'll see. Maybe I'll stop it before that. Um, But we'll just get started. This is from Wednesday. It's a very, very important piece. And you'll see when we play it. So let's turn this thing into a place of sound. Justin Peterson speaking Wednesday in Memphis after the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted to reinstate him to his seat in the Tennessee House of Representatives less than a week after he and Justin Jones were expelled for joining peaceful protests against gun violence after the Nashville school massacre. His swearing-in ceremony is taking place today in Nashville. When we come back, we'll be joined by Emory Professor Carol Anderson, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Stay with us. The earth in my hands, the breath in my lungs, the cool of the tide, the salt on my tongue, the spirit. 
Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. To talk more about the debate over gun control, Republican attacks on democracy across the country, and much more, we're joined by Carol Anderson, professor at Emory University, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. The paperback edition has just been published. She's also the author of One Person, No Vote. How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, and the book White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Her new documentary, named after a Langston Hughes poem, is titled I, Too. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Professor Anderson. It's great to have you with us. So you have both Justins, the youngest black lawmakers in the Tennessee House of Representatives, uh, being reinstated to the Tennessee legislature after leading with Gloria Johnson a protest against guns on the floor of the House after the Nashville school massacre. Talk about the significance of what's taken place over the last week with the overwhelmingly white legislature expelling these two legislators. Uh, You are seeing a convergence of so many of the multiple streams in American society right there. So on one hand, what you're seeing is the, the, the power of gerrymandering to create a legislature that is not representative of the people, that is not one person, one vote, but instead is that extreme partisan gerrymandering so that you have the needs of the people not being able to be addressed by that legislature. What you're also seeing is the the power of the youth who are pushing forward for a different vision of America. It is a vision that is multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual, multicultural, multireligious. And that vision scares those who are in those gerrymandered districts, scares the bejeebers, and that's the scholarly term, out of them. Because it is a way of being, a way of thinking, a way of being, of recognizing people's humanity, a way of knowing that those are, there are resources, incredible resources in this nation that should be available to all. But instead, you've got this hoarding that's happening, a hoarding of power, a hoarding of a way of, of wanting to be able to control. And in that control, this is why we're also seeing this valorization of the Second Amendment. And as I I laid out in the book, the Second Amendment emerged really fully um, out of a concern about black people, out of a fear of black people. And so this is what the role of the militia was. And so, yes, we hear the thing about domestic tyranny. They really weren't good at that. We heard this thing about being able to, the militia being able to fend off a, um, a, a foreign invasion. They really weren't good at that. But what they were good at was putting down slave revolts. And so when you're having the debates about the Second Amendment, you're having the battles over the ratification of the Constitution, the Second Amendment was the bribe to the South to not scuttle the Constitution of the United States in order to have control of that militia to keep the enslaved in check. 
And so this this stream that comes through is what we're consistently seeing is, and I think about Charlie Kirk, um, who said last week um, that, you know, unfortunately, they're going to be gun deaths, but that's the price you have to pay in order to have the Second Amendment. And so what it's saying is, because of the inherent fundamental fear of black people in this nation, we are willing to be unsafe in our schools, in our churches, in our grocery stores, in our amusement parks, on our streets, in our parking lots. We are willing to be unsafe in order to be able to have the, the, the access to, to weaponry, where we can't even think through it in terms of what is logical. What is logical is that weapons of war do not belong in the hands of civilians. What is logical is that you have background checks. What is logical is that you have red flag laws. But all of those, because of the gerrymandering that has happened politically and the the barriers that have been put up for access to the ballot box, you've got a political system that is not responsive to the needs of the people. And that is what you saw in Tennessee. Professor Anderson, I wanted to go to who Justin Jones is, one of the two black legislators who were expelled, uh, was reinstated on Monday. But there still has to be a special election with untold amount of money having to be spent because of the overwhelmingly white legislature expelling them. Um, But Justin Jones, before he was elected in November, um, was a well-known activist. And one of the things that he did um, in the last years, one of his targets um, was the bust of the Confederate Lieutenant General Nathan Bedford Forrest. He wanted it removed from the state capitol. Now, this is very interesting, uh, going to who Nathan Bedford was. The first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan sold slaves in Memphis, was in command at the Fort Pillow Massacre. Cameron Sexton, the Speaker of the House in Tennessee, um, voted against the removal. And of course, each time Justin Jones speaks, he is now calling for him to resign. Talk about the significance of this um, this push. Uh, ultimately, of course, they did succeed. And guns. And so part of what you're also seeing here is the the kind of, again, valorization of those who who were steeped in anti-blackness, those who and and to put that in a public space saying this is this. These are our value systems right here. That speaks volume. It speaks volumes about how intricately woven the anti-blackness is in the, the operating code and how you have this, this, this has been a consistent push to, to open up this nation to, you know, so we hold these truths to be self-evident. The push that you're seeing, what we heard from Justin Jones, what we heard from Justin Pearson was to make those truths self-evident. And that is to, to break apart this notion that you've got, um, that you, you embrace the Confederacy. You embrace the treason of attacking the United States of America. You embrace slaveholding. And so I think about Tate Reeves, um, uh, the governor of Mississippi, bringing this out as Confederate History Month in, in Mississippi. 
the same Mississippi that is is removing the control of the police and of the judicial system from Jackson. Again, it's part and parcel of the same the same pattern, part and parcel of the same drive to put black folks back in their place. I mean, that's what Nathan Bedford Forrest was about. Black folks thought they could be free. Black folks can't be free. Black folks thought that they were equal. Black folks can't be equal. And so when you think about that as the signal, as the public facing signal, what it says to the rest of the community is, is, a, is, a, is a kind of violence, a violence on your own humanity. And, and this other vision that the Justins are talking about is a vision that recognizes and embraces our humanity and that, that, that finds a way for us to be able to live into that full humanity, not to have this exclusion, this control, um, because part of what you're seeing in these, these legislatures is, is a drive for control to put all the things back in their place. So black folks need to go back in their place. Women need to go back in their place. Mm. Immigrants need to go back in their place. The LGBTQ community needs to go back in their place. That drive to put things back in their place, the push, the counterweight has been no, no. And you heard it when they said no, guilty, guilty, guilty. Professor Anderson, I want to ask about your new documentary, I Too. I want to play first a clip of the trailer. Were you taught the Hamburg Massacre in school? No. You looked across the river, all you could see is a jungle. As African Americans, you got to go find it yourself. you got to go research it because you're going to miss it because they're not telling you. That's the original cross with the bullet holes. So you have this church that is providing sanctuary and protection to those who are being chased out of their homes. That is biblical. When it happened, he hit underneath the street car. He said he could look underneath the car and see people hitting the street. Here they're sitting in this circle and they would grab someone and they'd take them over a hill and you'd hear a gunshot. We have no idea how many black people were murdered. Some of these records were intentionally not kept and some things have oddly enough gone missing. So that is the a clip of the trailer for the new film about you, I Too. Uh, you're talking there about the Hamburg Massacre. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that. And also the attack on African-American history, on American history across this country, where you have Missouri, the House, voting to defund the libraries, uh, because if they can't have their books banned, they don't want the libraries open, as in Llano, Texas. They're saying if a judge forces them to put them back, just close the libraries. You recently wrote a piece in the Washington Post titled Florida's Past Paints Ron DeSantis' War on Wokeism in a Dark Light. Put it all together for us, Professor Anderson. So as part of this pattern that we're talking about, there's also the attack on history, the attack on knowledge, because a people who knows their history, oh, 
then they're thinking in, in very new, vibrant ways. When you know what, where you come from, when you know the violence that has been rained down on communities, and it begins to shatter those, those very traditional pet political narratives. So one of the things we did in that film was to link the January 6th insurrection with the coup in Wilmington, North Carolina, where you had a multiracial government in the late 1890s that was overthrown by white supremacists, where you had black folks slaughtered, where you had the, 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 the newspaper for the, the black newspaper burned down and trashed, where in Hamburg, you had black, uh, the black militia marching on January 4th down Market Street, and you had two white men come up behind them just angry that black men were in uniform and, and demanded that, that they disband and then demanded that they hand over their guns to them. This is a state militia. And, and when the black soldiers said no, they were massacred massacred. But when we don't know these histories, then we're able to talk about, we're able to see American as as white and male, uh, as patriotism as white and male, as as as, um, as as the folks who are fighting for this country as white and male. But what we're really seeing is that you have had black folks believing in America, even when America didn't believe in them. You had black folks fighting for America when America wouldn't fight for them. And you had black folks just just pushing this nation to be stronger, to be better, to live up to its ideals. And that is what you saw in Tennessee in the legislature when the justice stood up and spoke the truth. And Ron DeSantis, if you can talk about the significance, he's not only, of course, governor of Florida, uh, but is probably running for president. And he's running on that platform of basically anti-blackness, anti-LGBTQ, and anti-woman. So you've got him pushing for the six-week abortion ban. I believe he signed off on that. You had the the scuttling of the African-American Studies uh, AP course because it lacked educational value. Um, And you had the attack on Disney because Disney said, you know, LGBTQ folk are folk. Um, and that is a radical idea. And so you see him attacking, attacking, attacking because the marginalized apparently in his worldview don't have the power to fight back. And that platform is so racist, homophobic and disgusting. And it is part of that that narrative of trying to bring back control. I think about the old Archie Bunker song, um, the days when men were men and girls were girls and you knew who you were then. Um, wouldn't we like to go back to those great old days again? It's hearkening back to a past that wasn't so great because it was violently exclusionary because it undermined democracy. And so what we're seeing is a full-blown assault on democracy. We're also seeing that full-blown assault on democracy by going after the rule of law, 
threatening judges, threatening prosecutors who are trying to bring justice to those who have allegedly broken the law. So all of these are factoring in the assault on education, the assault on knowledge, the assault on access to reproductive care, the assault on, 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 on the right to vote by raising these barriers, and then opening up full-blown access to guns, to the violence that those guns bring, and to craft it in that language of crime, crime, crime which has that subtone of blackness, blackness, blackness. It's, 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 a, it's a, a formula, it's a recipe, and it's, a, it's an authoritarian recipe. It is an anti-democratic recipe. And it is a recipe that you have young folk pushing back, fighting back. And, and, and one of the things that is consistent in American history is that that right-wing authoritarianism is always met with a larger, better vision of what America could be. And that is what we're seeing right now, a battle for that vision. There's the Ron DeSantis vision, and then there's the Justin Pearson and Justin Jones vision. And finally, going back to Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, I couldn't help continually this past week, but think of the title of your book, One Person, No Vote. Uh, the issue of gerrymandering all over this country, these um, hyper um, uh, super majorities in states where actually the state itself is evenly divided, but because of gerrymandering and what you have in Tennessee, um, these men, it was not only they who were expelled, it was all the people who voted for them. This wasn't like getting fired from uh, your employment in a store. They were elected. Right. And and oddly enough, or, or ironically enough, Tennessee was the site of that massive Supreme Court decision that laid out one person, one vote because of the ways that white rural conservative counties had disproportionate power in the state legislature vis-a-vis Nashville and Memphis. And because of a series of Supreme Court decisions, subsequent Supreme Court decisions, particularly Shelby County v. Holder in 2013, these states have been able to hyper-partisan gerrymander again, and this is the result. So when you have something like 70% or so of, of Americans wanting to have sensible gun safety legislation, but you have a legislature that is built on extreme partisan gerrymandering, where they appear to be immune from the will of the people. You're not getting that kind of legislative response. And that is why the bullhorn came up, because you had young folk saying to their representatives, we need gun safety legislation. We do not need to be in a space in our workplace where we are being gunned down. And the response from that legislature was they were concerned about their decorum being disrupted because people were responding to the needs of those people, to the needs of those young folk who were out in the halls. 
So extreme partisan gerrymandering is it is so anti-democratic, so anti one person, one vote. And the result is, is that you've got a, a society that believes in reproductive rights, a society that believes in the right to vote, a society that believes in gun safety legislation, and you have legislators who aren't responsive to the wants and the needs and the desires of the people. Well, Carol Anderson, I want to thank you for being with us. We'll continue this discussion. Carol Anderson is professor at Emory University in Atlanta, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. The paperback edition has just been published. Also author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, and the book White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide have traveled to Florida for abortions. Democratic minority. Hold on a second. Exception. Sorry, everybody. We got to start at the beginning here. From New York, this is Democracy Now! is really the opening salvo in a campaign by anti-abortion activists to use the conservative capture of the courts to ban abortion, not just in red states, but nationwide. The U.S. Justice Department has asked the Supreme Court to block an appeals court ruling limiting access to methapristone. We'll look at the legal battle over the abortion pill as well as Florida's new six-week abortion ban. Then to President Biden's trip to Ireland, marking the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that ended three decades of fighting in Northern Ireland. Finally, in New Jersey, it's day five of the first faculty strike in Rutgers University's 257-year history. Journalist as Washington and Havana hold talks focused on migration. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis signed a six week abortion ban into law Thursday. The ban will take effect if Florida's current 15 week ban is upheld at the conservative controlled state Supreme Court where it's being challenged. The six week ban would make exceptions for rape, incest, and human trafficking. In such cases, survivors could get an abortion up to 15 weeks into pregnancy, but only if they're able to provide official documentation such as a police report or medical records. Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, many pregnant people in the South have traveled to Florida for abortions. Democratic minority leader Fentress Driscoll spoke out against the six-week ban during a debate in the Florida House of Representatives Thursday. This is not reasonable because it amounts to an outright ban. Most women don't know that they are pregnant at six weeks. Let's be clear about the silent part. You just don't want women to have choice. 
Meanwhile, in Washington state, U.S. District Judge Thomas Rice has rebuffed Wednesday's appeals court ruling that temporarily restored access to the abortion medication methapristone across the United States, but with restrictions. Judge Rice said the drug is to remain available restriction-free to 17 states in the District of Columbia following his ruling last Friday, ordering the FDA to not roll back access to the abortion pill. The Justice Department also said it's asking the U.S. Supreme Court for an emergency order to halt Wednesday's restrictions in Methapristone. Protests to save abortion access are planned across the country this weekend. We'll have the latest on the state of reproductive rights in the U.S. after headlines. Calls are growing for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to be impeached after ProPublica on Thursday released more damning information about his relationship with Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow. In 2014, Thomas and his family sold a house and two vacant lots in Savannah, Georgia, to Crow for about $130,000, but never disclosed the sale, which appears to be a violation of the 1978 Ethics and Government Act. This comes after ProPublica published a bombshell investigation last week telling unreported luxury trips Harlan Crow lavished on Thomas over 20 years. In addition to being a major benefactor to Thomas and the GOP, Crow is also an avid collector of Nazi memorabilia. He has a signed copy by Hitler of Mein Kampf and Hitler's paintings. Federal authorities have arrested a 21-year-old Massachusetts man over the recent leak of highly classified Pentagon intelligence documents. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the arrest Thursday. Today, the Justice Department arrested Jack Douglas DeShera in connection with an investigation into alleged unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. Teixeira is an enlisted airman first class, one of the Air National Guard's lowest ranks. He worked in the Guard's 102nd Intelligence Wing. Federal authorities say he was also the leader of an online chat group that shared racist memes and information about guns on the Discord online platform popular among gamers. He's due in federal court in Boston, Massachusetts today for his arraignment where he faces charges under the Espionage Act. A newly discovered batch of classified U.S. intelligence documents leaked online shows infighting among Russian officials over the war in Ukraine. The documents reveal Russia's Federal Security Service accused the Russian military of downplaying the number of casualties in Ukraine due to the reluctance of officials to convey bad news up the chain of command. Other newly discovered leaked documents reveal the U.S. has been closely spying on U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. U.S. intelligence officials accused him of being overly soft on Russian President Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Germany's foreign minister has urged China to use its influence on Moscow to push for an end to the war following similar calls from French President Macron and the European Union. In Russia, supporters of the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny say his health has rapidly deteriorated in recent days. Spokesperson Kira Yarmish says Navalny lost nearly 20 pounds in just two weeks after complaining of stomach pains. We can't rule out the idea that uh, he is being poisoned now, but not uh, in huge uh, dosage before. Uh, but in small ones, uh, so that he not, so 
not to die immediately, but to suffer. Navalny is one of President Vladimir Putin's most prominent critics in 2020. He narrowly survived an apparent assassination attempt when he was poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok. Saudi Arabia has exchanged more than 800 prisoners of war with Yemen's Houthi rebels. It's the largest such prisoner exchange since 2020 and comes after Saudi Arabia and Iran recently agreed to restore ties, boosting the prospects for a negotiated settlement to the U.S.-supported Saudi-led war on Yemen, which has left over 21 million people in need of assistance. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has reached a deal to resume consular services with Syria after the first trip by a Syrian foreign minister to the kingdom since Syria's civil war began in 2011. The award-winning Central American independent news outlet El Faro announced Thursday it's relocating most of its operations from El Salvador to Costa Rica as repression against free press intensifies under the government of the Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele. El Faro journalists and newsroom staff have faced physical threats, judicial persecution, and in 2021 it was revealed nearly two dozen of them were being surveilled with the Israeli NSO group's Pegasus spyware. President Biden announced Thursday his administration plans to expand health care access to hundreds of thousands of immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. People with Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, would be able to enroll in Medicare if they're low income or find coverage through the Affordable Care Act. This comes at a time where the rate of uninsured people in the country is at a record high. North Dakota's Republican Governor Doug Burgum signed a law Tuesday banning trans girls and women from participating in school sports. Similar laws now exist in 19 other states, though a new rule proposed by the Biden administration is seeking to outlaw such blanket bans, setting conservative states up for a clash with the federal government. Meanwhile, in Nebraska, State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh has been filibustering an anti-trans package for seven weeks. The measure seeks to ban gender-affirming care for minors and penalize their health care providers. I'm going to give you everything I can for your children, and I will continue. No matter what happens today, I will continue, and I am sorry. But there's nothing more I can do within my control. I am doing everything I can within my control, and I am sorry. Nebraska State Senator Kavanaugh has blocked every related bill from consideration in the legislature, vowing to, quote, burn this session to the ground over this bill, unquote. Nebraska's filibuster rules allow for taking bathroom breaks and sitting. (laughs) And in France, hundreds of thousands of people flooded the streets Thursday in the latest protests against President Emmanuel Macron's measure raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. The mobilizations came as France's top court is expected to rule today on the policy's constitutionality after Macron rammed it through by executive fiat. In Paris, protesters stormed the headquarters of luxury group LVMH, demanding France's wealthiest contribute more to financing the state pension. 
They are looking for solutions to finance the pension system. There is a very simple solution. It is to take from the pockets of billionaires. We are here at the headquarters of LVMH. This is the seat of Bernard Nall, who is the richest billionaire of all billionaires in France and in the whole world. If the social security funds are running out, they can come and get money here, among other places. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at the status of abortion access in the United States. Less than a year after the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion in Roe v. Wade, it's expected to weigh in today on a ruling set to take effect Saturday that effectively overrides the Food and Drug Administration's 20-year-old approval of the medication abortion pill, methapristone. This comes after the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals Wednesday partially blocked last week's ruling by a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas that banned the pill nationwide. It upheld parts of the decision that will only allow patients to access the pill through a doctor's office or clinic and not through the mail or over-the-counter. Meanwhile, in Washington State, U.S. District Judge Thomas Rice has rebuffed Wednesday's appeals court ruling, saying the drug is to remain available restriction-free in 17 states and the District of Columbia, following his ruling last Friday, ordering the FDA to not roll back access to methapristone as a result of a lawsuit brought by the attorneys general in those 17 states and D.C., Protests to save abortion are planned across the country this weekend, including in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis has just signed a six-week abortion ban into law that will take effect if Florida's current 15-week ban is upheld at the conservative-controlled state Supreme Court where it's being challenged. For more, we're joined by Amy Littlefield. She's the abortion access correspondent at The Nation. Her most recent piece, A Conservative Christian Judge Rules Against Medication Abortion, How Hard Will Democrats Fight Back? Before we go to the nationwide battle, Amy Littlefield, although they're all connected, let's go to the latest that's just taken place in Florida. Ron DeSantis signing yesterday a six-week abortion ban. Talk about what this means. Yes. And first, I just want to say, Amy, happy belated birthday. And I wish that we were here celebrating and not staring down the ghost of Anthony Comstock and the looming possibility of a nationwide abortion ban. Um, but you're right to start with Florida, because that is absolutely essential. If you look at the map of abortion access in this country, Florida is almost an island in the south. In the six months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, no state saw a higher rise in abortion patients traveling to the state for care than Florida. There were more than 7,000 additional abortions that happened in the state after the Dobbs decision compared to before over that six-month period. And so Florida has been a haven for abortion patients all across the South. And the fact that they now have this six-week ban is going to have a ripple effect across the entire nation because we're going to see people pushed further and further out. We're going to see wait times extending 
at clinics all across the country in order to meet the need of this surge in patients. And of course, there will be an untold number of people um, who resign themselves to unwanted pregnancies because of this. And Amy, can you talk about the what happened uh, on Wednesday with the three-judge panel in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Texas, uh, partially upholding a, a nationwide ban on uh, Mr. Pristone that a federal judge issued there, and what uh, what that order was going to look like on the ground? I think that is the big question, Juan, and the reigning uh, sentiment right now among abortion providers, among legal experts, is confusion because we don't have a script for something like this, for a judge trying to revoke the government agency in charge of reviewing drugs, you know, trying to roll back decades of scientific advancements and approvals. Um, and so as best we can tell what happened, you know, to recap, a rogue, rogue judge in Texas tried to revoke the FDA's 23-year-old approval of Mifepristone last Friday. And then in the middle of the night, um, Overnight on Wednesday, two Trump appointees who are among the most conservative judges in our country looked at that ruling and said, okay, even we think that Judge Matthew Kaczmarek went too far here. You can't reach back 23 years and revoke the approval of a drug like this. The statute of limitations does not allow that. But what they did do is try to roll back the clock to a time before 2016 when the FDA's regulations required people seeking medication abortion to go to a clinic in person three times to take a higher dose of the drug that causes more side effects, that cap the gestational age for medication abortion at seven weeks instead of 10 weeks, and that required doctors rather than nurse practitioners or physician assistants to uh, prescribe it. So they're trying to reinstate um, this reality. If the Fifth Circuit gets their way, that's what will happen. Now, of course, there's mitigating factors, including the fact that even during that time period when those regulations were in place, there was off-label use of mifepristone that allowed people who were through 10 weeks to get access to medication abortion. So we don't know how the FDA is going to respond to whatever ruling ends up coming from the Supreme Court. What we do know is right now, nothing has changed because these orders are not in effect. Medication abortion is still available in states where it was legal and unavailable in states where it's illegal, unless you're gonna to go to plancpills.org and look for ways to reach around those legal channels. And um, all eyes are on the Supreme Court and defenders of abortion rights are in the highly unenviable position of relying on the Supreme Court and its three Trump nominees who were put on that court precisely to undermine abortion rights uh, to save abortion access in America. Um, there's another really important piece. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say there's another really important piece that you've already covered on the show, and that's the ghost of Anthony Comstock that is hanging over all of this. Um, and I'm glad you had Lauren McIver Thompson on the show. It's amazing that we need a 19th century historian to explain the state and future of abortion rights in America. 
Um, but the both Judge Matthew Kaczmarek's ruling and the First Fifth Circuit ruling that came out um, overnight on Wednesday pay credence and seem to support the reinstatement of the Comstock Act to be used in the in stopping the mailing of medication, abortion, um, drugs, and that could be catastrophic. And if the Supreme Court supports that idea, it would be tantamount potentially to a nationwide ban on abortion, including in blue states, because it's very hard for clinics to operate if they can't use the mail. And you mentioned the, the Supreme Court. How likely is this to get there and how quickly do you envision it uh, getting to the court? Right. It could happen very fast because the Biden administration, you know, we have this situation where there's two, there's conflicting rulings. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has said one thing. A judge out of Washington state has said in 17 states in Washington, D.C., the FDA may not impose any new requirements. And so the FDA is facing these two conflicting rulings. And so I think what abortion rights advocates are hoping is that the Supreme Court is going to act between now and Saturday before the Fifth Circuit ruling would take effect in order to preserve access to mifepristone and medication abortion. That's sort of the best case scenario. Of course, we don't know what the Supreme Court is going to say. But even if they do come in and save the day here when it comes to medication abortion, I think everyone should be paying very close attention to what they say on the 1873 Comstock Act and whether they think that it could apply to the mailing of medication, abortion, drugs, and devices. Amy, on Thursday, uh, Democracy Now! reached Francine Cueto, the co-founder of Plan C, which provides information on how people in the U.S. are accessing at-home abortion pill options online. If you're a person, uh, just a person who can afford to go online and purchase the pills, online, purchase them, put them in your medicine cabinet, and share them with friends, tell people about it, make sure you have access to these pills. There are many routes of access, and our Plan C uh, website will tell you how to do wherever you live, what your access to these very safe and very, up until today, legal pills. Um, if you're a clinician, continue to do what you can to provide and, and, and um, you know, do the best you can. Uh, if you're a lawyer, step up and, and fight this undemocratic attack on use of judiciary to try to uh, literally break all sorts of conventions that are really uh, so undemocratic it's hard to believe they're happening. If you're if you're an activist, get out in the streets and talk about this. Do, do your bit. Everyone needs to step up. Um, I think this is a moment in time, and um, we all have a role, and uh, this, this will not be taken away because it's really an attack on our, on our agency, on our, on our rights, on our human autonomy. 
Again, that's Francine Cueto, the co-founder of Plan C, which is Plan Plan B, the morning after pill. Um, but this follows up on a, piece, a quote of yours in your piece, Amy, from Amy Hagstrom Miller, founder of Whole Women's Health, saying, I don't think the courts are the only path for justice. That comes from someone who sued the state of Texas 11 times. We can't be too naive to think that the only path for justice here is going to be in the courts. So what are the other options? And we're going to end with that, Amy. We're at a point, right, where about a dozen states have outlawed abortion. Talk about the grassroots movement and what difference that can make in this country. Right. I mean, the grassroots movement here is huge. And just because you're not hearing about it doesn't mean it's not happening. That can be intentional, right? Um, aid access has seen a huge surge in people seeking advanced provision, meaning ordering medication abortion kits so that they have them on hand in case they need them or need to give them to a friend. Um, all of the different telemedicine services have seen a surge in interest and, and questions about getting medication abortion ahead of time. Um, so people are preparing to help each other, to help their neighbors, to be ready. Um, and those grassroots networks are huge. And sometimes they're through the legal channels, like abortion funds that are paying for people's flights, are doing airlifts, are getting people to abortion clinics. And sometimes they're underground and less formalized. And then they have to do with, you know, bringing pills in from groups like Las Libres in Mexico or ordering them from overseas through channels like PlanCPills.org. Um, and providers like Amy Hagstrom Miller have been out front saying, look, whatever the court is, is going to do here, we're going to wait to hear from the Biden administration because we take our orders from the FDA. So I've got one final thing here that can happen, which is for Democrats, right? I mean, we've seen Democratic uh, officials at the state level in states like California, Washington State, Massachusetts, New York, stockpiling medication abortion pills. For Democrats in Congress, I've got something you can do today. Introduce legislation to repeal the Comstock Act. Even if it doesn't pass, put every Republican in Congress on record trying to resuscitate the ghost of a man who wanted to ban contraception and boasted of driving his targets to suicide with his anti-obscenity crusades. Bring Anthony Comstock back. Let's have a public airing about his legacy because Republicans understand they can't ban abortion nationwide unless they're able to resuscitate this law from 1873. And that's what they're trying to do. So Democrats, you know, if they needed a plan on abortion here, I'm giving you a plan. Try this. <laughs> Repeal the Comstock Act because that is the strategy for anti-abortion activists moving forward, and these lawsuits are clear evidence. And of course, Amy, there are Republicans who also are pro-choice, like Congressmember Mace. Right, of course, of course, and we need to hear from them, and and we need to hear have a full airing because abortion rights are popular, right? They're popular across party lines. Referenda. The referendum has shown us that the Wisconsin State Supreme Court election just showed us that. Right. And so anti-abortion strategists are trying to go through these back channels using conservative courts that have been stacked with Trump appointees. Um, and the more that we can talk this in public, the better. Amy Littlefield, abortion access correspondent at The Nation. We'll link to your piece, uh, Conservative Christian Judge Rules Against Medication Abortion. How hard will Democrats fight back?
Next up, we go to Ireland as President Biden is there marking the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement that ended more than 30 de three decades of fighting in Northern Ireland. Stay with us. National Recording Registry for her 1989 album, All Hail the Queen. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. President Biden is wrapping up his trip this week to Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the U.S.-brokered peace deal known as the Good Friday Agreement that ended three decades of fighting in Northern Ireland. Earlier today, Biden visited his ancestral hometown in County Mayo. On Thursday, he addressed the Irish Parliament in Dublin. This week marks a vital milestone for peace. 25 years ago, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, 25 years ago, one of my best friends in the Senate and a great, great friend to this day is George Mitchell. As he said, there were 300 days of failure, or 700 days of failure, and one day of success. But it was a success that one day, but more is to be done. Yesterday I was in Belfast to honor those who commit themselves to peace, to reiterate the enduring support of the United States for the Good Friday Agreement and Northern Ireland's democratic institutions. I think, I think that the United Kingdom should be working closer with Ireland in this ever, in this endeavor. Political violence must never again be allowed to take hold in this island. President Biden's visit comes less than two months after British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced he'd reached a deal with the European Union on post-Brexit trade rules for Northern Ireland. Sunak said the deal will remove any sense of border in the Irish Sea. We go now to Derry in Northern Ireland, where we're joined by Eamon McCann, journalist, writer, activist, former member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, also took part in the march on Bloody Sunday in 1972 and helped form the Bloody Sunday Trust. He's the author of the recently republished 1974 book, War and an Irish Town. Well, given your history, Eamon, and also talking about the present this week, the visit of President Biden, can you talk about the significance of this trip in Northern Ireland, Ireland? Well, I think the, I mean, how we evaluate the significance of it depends on the political perspective uh, which we individually have. I, I think that I, I, my own view and the main purpose of uh, Mr. Biden's trip, uh, trip from the American point of view, from the point of view of the Biden administration, 
as it's involved. That the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement to be celebrated in the North and in America and everywhere else as a peace table that President Biden himself had uh, brought about or helped uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to bring about. Now, that hasn't worked. And uh, Biden must be very disappointed that it hasn't worked because there isn't a reconstituted administration in Belfast, a power-sharing administration with uh, ministers and unions serving in the same government. That has not happened. Now, the, uh, the way the powers that be, there's an Ireland and Britain and America, all sort of expected things to happen, is that they would have been deemed, that the deal would have been signed just uh, within the last week. And this would have happened with great panoply that we have uh, all the parties signing up with Joe Biden in the middle of them, of them and uh, peace at last in Northern Ireland being declared. That would have been a huge, a huge public relations triumph for uh, Mr. Biden. But okay, what happened, of course, is that all the parties are not serving together because of the peculiar arrangements established by the Good Friday Agreement itself. Each side, Protestant uh, Unionists and Catholic Nationalists, each side has a veto over what might happen. And the Democratic Unionist Party uh, has decided to exercise this veto. And so the whole process cannot go forward. This must be a bitter disappointment to those in Ireland who were expecting under actual unrestrained celebration. And Mr. Biden must have been expecting unrestrained celebration with himself at the center of it. It hasn't happened that we don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And uh, Amy, could you talk a little bit about what is uh, uh, what is the cause of the current deadlock among the various parties? And also, how do you see uh, Brexit uh, as a threat to building peace in Northern Ireland? Well, Brexit is certainly uh, a, a factor, but there's many other factors as well. And if I, you know, it's, uh, it's somebody once said about the Irish problem, you know, it's a very simple problem, but uh, impossible uh, uh, to understand. Uh, Brexit threatens to uh, erect a border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, or alternatively, a border right down the Irish Sea. Like separating the whole of Ireland, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, separating uh, a, the whole of Ireland from, uh, a, 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 from the United Kingdom. Now, that's an immediate implication for the question of partition uh, in Ireland, because if you have trade barriers between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, then you have threatened the integrity of the United Kingdom, no matter what way you construe it. That is a loosening or lessening of the bonds between Northern Ireland and the and uh, uh, the United Kingdom. It is to some extent, both symbolically and other in substance, it is detaching uh, Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom and uh, a putting it into a position which is closer to that of the Irish Republic. Now, for those who want to see a, tra- a transition to an Irish Republic, that's terrific. That's terrific. Are those like the Unionist Party, the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, the absolutely anathema? Here you have, once again, in 2023, you have the old Irish question come to the fore again. But Churchill once called this is after the war, the tide of the battle recedes. And let me look what we see of the dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone rising above the surface again. We are witnessing that today. 
And what about the, this proposed uh, bill by the British government, the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Bill? What is it and what's been the reaction by uh, various uh, uh, interest groups uh, in Ireland and in uh, Northern Ireland? Well, the Troubles Bill, I... It's uh, uh, a unique bill. You know, we're talking about division, and the troubles were a reflection of the division. But the British Troubles Bill has had the marvellous, marvellous result of uniting every party in Northern Ireland. They're from Sibbon Green to Deep Dyed Orange. They are all united in saying they don't want this bill. And the reason why they're all united is that the bill are in effect with amnesty all those over recent years who have committed crimes in connection uh, with the troubles. That's putting it very simply that that's what it means. And of course, Catholic nationalists in Ireland saying we are not having that because we have bloody Sunday, we have bloody Friday, we have, we have a long uh, a history over this last uh, a 25 years of violence and no justice for the victims. Now at the same time, you know, if you're a, a Protestant Unionist in Northern Ireland, you can't say, wait a minute, if we implement this, everybody who is every IRA atrocity, as they would see it, is now forgiven. So we have no re a recourse. Now that dissatisfies everybody. And that lies behind the fact that the, uh, uh, and as I said, uh, a couple of minutes ago, so they, there is a unity against this bill. So uh, which one that you could say is a shining light for Northern Ireland, everybody working together. That's everybody working together to refuse the amnesty bill, which the Conservative government in London is absolutely insisting on imposing upon people. Very briefly in a sentence, the reason why the Conservatives, of course, are imposing this is that the Conservatives do not want their own soldiers to be guilty of atrocities in Northern Ireland, to be held to account, to be brought before a court, to be given the same treatment as the British government would like to give to terrorists, uh, uh, as they say. So this is a, I mean, oh, what a tangled world we have over. That's Shakespeare, right, British. Well, Amy McCann, we want to thank you so much for being with us, journalist, writer, activist in Derry, Northern Ireland. Next up, it's day five of the first faculty strike in Rutgers University's 257-year history. We'll speak with one of the professors on strike. Stay with us. <laughs>
Gallagher singing to the tune of Hey Baby by Bruce Channel. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We go now to New Jersey, where faculty at the state-run Rutgers University have entered their fifth day of a strike. This is the first faculty strike in Rutgers' 257-year history. It's being organized by three unions that represent more than 9,000 professors, lecturers, graduate assistants, and researchers at Rutgers' three campuses in New Brunswick, Newark, and Camden. They're demanding increased pay and better job security, especially for poorly paid graduate workers and adjunct faculty. We're joined now by Donna Murch, an associate professor of history at Rutgers University and New Brunswick chapter president of Rutgers AUPAFT, one of the academic workers unions on strike. Professor Murch, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you lay out um, what exactly um, is at issue here. And also, when you go to the Rutgers website, it says it's business as usual. People should go to class. Yet this is the first strike in 257 years involving, and it involves thousands and thousands of workers there. Thank you so much, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about what's going on at Rutgers, which is very exciting. So I would say the core issues that brought the union coalition together um, they are very connected to what happened to the university during the pandemic. So Rutgers' response to the pandemic was to lay off 5% of its workforce. And when it laid them off, they lost their health insurance and their tuition benefits at a time when COVID was hitting New Jersey and New York like a storm. That necessitated that the unions come together and begin to bargain and to think of themselves as really a wall-to-wall -wall coalition. So that history is very important. And it's brought us to this point in which three unions have gone on strike. And the core issues are, number one, the way in which upward, the central administration, upper, upper management has been growing and growing and really siphoning money off of the core needs of the university. So what we are calling for in this moment of runaway inflation is for the Rutgers management to come to the table and really think about what the university is for, teaching, research, and service to our communities. So the core demands are, one, a living wage, equal pay for equal work for adjunct workers. So you have adjuncts who are being paid starvation wages, uh, many of whom are on Medicaid, who can't afford rent and food and all the essentials of life. And this, at the heart of the strike, is is really trying to change a university which is dependent on sweated informal labor, where they have to apply for their contracts every six months and have to teach at multiple institutions just to cobble together the bare minimum. So a fight to think about adjunct and adjuncts, postdocs, graduate workers, EOF counselors, contingent, non-tenure track, full-time faculty, as well as tenure stream. And I mention all those job categories because this industrial vision is about holding up the different job categories, figuring out how they come together, and they work to, in solidarity. 
Uh, in terms of Rutgers saying on its website, business as usual, well, that is not true. Our estimates are that 70% of the classes are shut down. And because of the broad uh, wall-to-wall nature of the strike, uh, even construction workers on campus have walked off the job so as not to violate the picket lines. So I think one of the things that has been also really profound is the outpouring of support and participation by the undergraduates. There have been thousands and thousands of people out in the street, and significant numbers are undergraduates, graduate workers, as well as other people from the three unions. So I've taught at Rutgers for 20 years, and this is the biggest popular gathering that I've seen. And there were so many people on Monday after we had a rally. It was on Tuesday that they led a march that shut down George Street, which is the main drag in New Brunswick. Uh, Don, I wanted to ask you, this has become almost the, the spring of ac- academic revolt or, around the country. We've seen strikes in, in uh, University of California. We've, uh, we've seen uh, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. And, to the, and right now, there are three other universities in the Chicago area that are on strike. Chicago State University, Eastern Illinois, and Governor State University. Uh, and uh, with thousands of faculty there. And yet many of these universities, uh, uh, like Rutgers, are experiencing um, record, uh, uh, they don't call it profits, they call it surpluses uh, or reserves uh, over, over the past few years. How do you explain this, uh, the, the universities being flush with cash, yet being telling their faculty and their employees that there's not enough money to give them uh, adequate raises? Yeah, thank you so much for that, Juan. We miss you at Rutgers. Uh, It's good to be here with you. Um, That is extremely important. And I can talk about, uh, through the lens of Rutgers, how this links to this national movement. So the Rutgers administration has been crying broke. And their justification for not responding to demands is that they simply don't have the money. And our union hired a forensic accountant to go through all of the public records. Because Rutgers is a public university, it is subject to transparency requirements. And Howard Bunces, his research demonstrates very clearly that the university has the largest unrestricted reserves in its history. It's up to $886 million. And these are the rainy day funds that are being used, that are normally used in times of, you know, uh, downturn or to meet the essential needs of its workers. The way I explain this is that it's where I started. The neoliberal university, which has been literally the upper level administration is metastasizing. They've doubled in size over the past 10 years, and they're constantly hiring different vice presidents of this, vice presidents of that, largely accountants and MBAs who have no experience in higher education. And I really think it is a question of distribution. It is true that in the last 30 years, there has been a defunding of higher education from the federal government and from state government. But at Rutgers, we've been able to win really important concessions, including our lobbying, the lobbying of the union, which won back a significant portion of Rutgers funding in 2020. But there's really no correspondence that I can see between them having large unrestricted reserves and their labor policies. I think that it grows out of an idea that they want labor to be as cheap as possible and that it's really the people at the very top 
who benefit from the university. So I think that at its core, this is a political and an economic struggle to say tuition, the students are largely funding the university, their needs matter, that the faculty, the graduate students, the ad, graduate workers, the uh, many different categories of workers that come together to make the university possible, they matter. We make Rutgers. Uh, and also, uh, the, pre the current president of, of Rutgers, Jonathan Holloway, was a respected uh, scholar uh, historic, uh, in, in history and African-American studies. He always talks about having a beloved community, but he's been threatening to go to court to get an, uh, to seek an injunction against the strike. Yeah, thank you. This is such an important piece. Um, and I'll just say we're going through incredibly intense negotiations right now. A lot of us have been up all night working on this, figuring out what to do. And we're, we are under injunction threat. And I'll talk a little bit more later about what's going on in Trenton today and how you can help. But um, we started bargaining. Our contract was up. Uh, at the end of June 2022. And we had started bargaining in May. Many times the university did not come to the table at all. They did not bargain in earnest. They refused to respond to our counter proposals. I think the most shocking one of those is that the grads uh, submitted their proposal for a living wage and they failed to respond to that for seven, eight months. We're only now beginning to have even a substantive discussion about moving grads to livable wages. So these resistance tactics have been going on all along. When it became clear that bargaining was not going well and was breaking down and that the union was mobilizing, Jonathan Holloway sent a letter to all of the different parts of our bargaining unit and through Rutgers email and all of the undergraduates saying that Public sector strikes in New Jersey are illegal and that those that participated that participate in them are subject to fines, not only of the individual union, but individual fines and facing threat of arrest. And there was another email sent uh, several weeks later doubling down on this. And he was claiming he was sending a clear message that we will go to the courts to criminalize the strike. I want to say something about the technicalities of this because it's extremely important. Public sector strikes are not illegal in New Jersey. If you go on strike, the police do not arrest you. The only way criminalization happens is that the employer goes to a court. They have one hearing. They ask for an injunction. Usually it entails a cease and desist order. Uh, and then they go back to the workers and see if they're willing to cease and desist. And if not, then they go back. So Jonathan Holloway will go back to the courts to seek penalties. And he will ask for specific penalty penalties and there will be a hearing. Uh, these have been granted, but they have not been granted in all cases. So that's very important, the mechanisms of the injunction, that it has to be sought by the employer, which is a clear sign that Jonathan Holloway, you know, at a time where we've seen the you know, largest protest in American history around issues of criminalization is willing to criminalize a strike in a deep blue state like New Jersey. So this has enormous consequences for labor. And that helps to explain the incredible coalition that's come together. There are thousands of people there, all the people that I talked about, the undergraduates, but also people coming from labor unions all over the country, the New Jersey AFL-CIO, Central Labor Councils from all over New Jersey, because everyone is recognizing that we have a Democratic governor, and Rutgers is one of the largest employers, and the threat to break the strike is really a threat, not only to all of us at Rutgers, 
But to New Jersey and the rest of the country at this moment when we're seeing this incredible surge in higher education and organizing, and I have to give a shout out to grad organizing all over the country. I too was a UC grad in the 1990s when we organized the union, and I think the graduate students have shown us what's possible. Well done, Emerge. Well, That's thank you there. for being with us. Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University and New Brunswick Chapter President of Rutgers AUPAFT, one of the academic workers' unions now on strike. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez, who's taught at Rutgers for the past seven years. But we end today's show looking at U.S. policy toward Cuba. As high-level U.S. and Cuban officials met Wednesday to discuss migration from Cuba. This comes after the U.S. Embassy in Havana started to process immigrant visas in January for the first time since 2017. It also comes as the Biden administration faces increasing calls to lift its designation of Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism and also the related embargo that severely limited trade and more with Cuba for decades. For more, we're joined by Liz Oliva Fernandez, award-winning Cuban journalist with the independent media organization Belly of the Beast, based in Cuba, but on tour here in the United States for screenings and events with director Reed Lindsay. They're starting to work on a new documentary looking into the economic and political interests driving Cuba policy under President Biden. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Liz. If you can start off by talking about the significance of these negotiations that are not getting very much attention between Cuba and Washington that are happening this week here. Well, first, and thank you, Amy, for having me in this program. Well, of course, that right now, the United States is open to talk about with Cuba about migration because you need to know that this is not only sanctions that you are putting against a country. This is economic warfare that the United States is playing with Cuba. So right now, this is having an effect, boomerang effect in the U.S. because a lot of people from Cuba are coming to the United States. But they are not coming for us uh, political refugees. They are coming to the United States as economical refugees because the situation in Cuba is pretty bad. So. Uh, that's something that United States government, the Biden administration, is facing right now. And in terms of uh, the historic policy of the United States of allowing people to be processed normal visas through uh, Cuba, uh, what has been the policy in the past? Well, they have a policy to. Um, visa for migrants, like a family reunification, they call it. But this is not something that they are doing. They have to process like 20,000 migration visas at the year, and they never did that. They never uh, backed that numbers. They never fold that numbers because the politics uh, is trying to get the people in the United States, uh, but they know about a normal, a regular, uh, process because when you 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 have this kind of um, law like uh, adjustment law, they are they are giving privilege to Cuba in order to uh, come to the United States as um, refugees. Uh, but they say it all the time that it's about political refugees that are coming to Cuba, and that's wrong. 
that's inaccurate because when the most of the people who come to this country from Cuba, they're coming as economic refugees, as I already said, uh, because this is not something that is like uh, from the last year or the 10 last year. This is something that is coming from uh, the 60. So, uh, for example, I have been in crisis my entire life. My mom has lived in crisis in my entire life. Uh, the, 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 the biggest cause of this crisis is the uh, sanctions that the United States put against Cuba, is weighing against my country. Um, that's the result. That's the consequence. So maybe instead of talking about migration, uh, I'd rather that the United States and my government have conversations about what is causing this migration? What is causing this wave, the huge wave wave in the last year with migration? The cause is the sanctions. So maybe in the future, the United States government and the administration uh, have the will to talk about the, the real cause of these migrations. And I wanted to ask you, as a journalist, you interviewed Elian Gonzalez, the Cuban national who was at the center of an international custody battle as a child back in 1999. That's a quarter century ago. I remember going to Miami, covering the protests of the uh, Cuban uh, exile community there, insisting that Elian stay uh, here uh, in the United States. Uh, but the Clinton administration returned him to to Cuba, and he is uh, is uh, became a member of the Cuban Assembly. Uh, could you talk about uh, uh, the National Assembly? Could you talk about your interview with him? Yeah, of course. I have the privilege to have this interview with Elian Gonzalez. Um, he's pretty glad to have a life in Cuba. Now he's playing like a, a biggest role because he's really political active because. He recently formed part of the Cuban Assembly. So he's really open to trying to do uh, help from his seat in the uh, National Assembly in Cuba to try to get to the point to uh, the Obama normalization province, pro, uh, normalizations uh, between Cuba and the United States, sorry. And he's willing to try to get a better relationship between two countries because he really believed that uh, there is a better future for us, a future when people from the United States can have like a normalized relationships. Um, Elizabeth Fernandez, we don't have much time, but I wanted to ask you about this designation uh, by the U.S. government of Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism and the effect that that has, especially as Biden was vice president to Obama under Obama, who normalized relations before Trump took that back. Yeah, well, this state sponsor of terrorism list is like a death sentence for Cuba because nobody wants to do business with terrorists. So nobody, Cuba is not allowed to get credit to get like a people coming to my country to investment because nobody wants to be related with a, uh, a country that is called like a terrorist. And this is for me, it's really cynical and really hypocritical uh, because he was not only uh, 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 
open to the terrorists if there's no all any no financing terrorist attacks or acts around the world uh, is also a victim of terrorist attack for example uh, before September 11 Cuba was suffered the biggest terrorist attack in the Western Hemisphere and uh, that's really bad because the people who perpetrated this attack uh, had been living uh, freely in the United States until his, their deaths. Um, Cuba doesn't have its own terrorist list, uh, sponsored state of terrorism, but if we have this privilege that the United States have, like you are a, people, you are a terrorist and you are a terrorist, uh, if Cuba had that kind of privilege, we can make like a United States the first name in that list. We want to thank you so much for being with us, Liz Oliva Fernandez, award-winning Cuban journalist with Belly of the Beast, now touring the United States, a journalist in Cuba. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program is special in a number of ways. We are experimenting with our format and our structure, and bear with us as we experiment in order to find the best possible programs to bring you. I am very proud in that spirit to bring to your microphone, cameras that we have, a very special guest. Her name is Clara Matei. She's a faculty member in the economics department there. And she recently published her first book. It's called Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. Matei's book shows how austerity economics paved in the past tense and may also pave in the present tense the way to fascism. And she's currently working on another book that reassesses the so-called golden age of capitalism from 1945 to 1975, and it's governing Keynesian economics through the lens of her analysis of austerity. So first of all, Professor Matei, Clara, if I may, uh, welcome to our program. Your work is extraordinarily important and I wanted to share it with my audience. It's the greatest pleasure to be here. I'm an enormous fan of this program. I listen to it weekly and so could not be a bigger honor to have worked on this book and be able to share it with you. Thank you, that's very kind. Let's jump right into this. First of all, I think I need to be sure that everybody understands what the word austerity means. And it's central to your work. So tell us briefly how you understand what that term represents, especially because it's a bit more commonly used in Europe, for example, than in the United States. So I think it's especially important to know how you understand. 
It's crucial to define austerity also because the bold claim of my work is that we live under austerity capitalism, which is much more important to understand how the society works rather than just focus on neoliberal capitalism. So this is why austerity really needs to be defined also because it's a word that is rarely used and when it is used, is usually used in a very depoliticized way just to point at some cuts in government expenditure in general. So the reality is that austerity deserves repoliticization. And what I mean by that is to avoid just discussing austerity as this technical tool to manage the economy by which we focus on whether it is actually capable of boosting economic growth and solving the budgetary and the inflationary issues. We need to rethink austerity as something more than just cuts in government expenditure in general and see it as the trinity. So the capital order, my work, really looks at austerity as a trinity that is backed by power for powerful economic theory. So let's focus on the trinity for a moment. Why a trinity? Well, because austerity is, first, Fiscal austerity, but fiscal austerity, again, cannot be looked at the aggregate where the state, if the state spends or not. But what's relevant is where the state spends. And what you see is that it's all about cutting social expenditure, cutting on the benefits for the people, unemployment, housing, education, health, so forth, and Spending money on other factors, and today more timely than ever, as you well know from the show, a war uh, on war expenditures. This is the shift of resources from the majority to the minority who profits. And this fiscal austerity is not just about where the state spends, but also how the state takes in its revenue. And what you see here that austerity is about regressive taxation, meaning that it's about the fact that the majority pay more of their fair share uh, in terms of how much they get taxed, while the minority is taxed ever less. And this is very important, especially in a society like the United States, for example, in which there have been constant cuts in the higher income brackets. So that while it, during Asian hours time, we had 91%, now actually it is down to 37% as of 2021. And we know that also it's about reduction in capital gain taxes and reduction in corporate taxes while we increase consumption taxes uh, that, of course, hit all of us alike. So this is fiscal austerity, regressive taxation and cuts in social expenditures. Then we have monetary austerity, again, something that we are familiar with right now, which is all about increasing interest rates. Again, a policy that um, protects and um, incentivizes the money few, those who, for example, now can invest in treasury bonds and make a great deal of, 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 of money from it, while the majority of us have to pay more uh, in terms of um, credits we borrow to get to the end of the month. And especially we will, as we will talk about in a little bit, we will potentially lose our jobs because we know that increases in interest rates has an effect on the labor market. And this is not by accident, but the capital order actually theorizes that the whole purpose of austerity is indeed to repress wages, to keep workers in check. 
So second element of the Trinity combined with the third element of the Trinity, which is industrial austerity. And industrial austerity can be understood as a variety of state uh, policies such as privatizations, so selling off to private capitalists the majority of um, state-run industries, attacks on labor unions, and all forms of deregulation of the labor market, which makes labor more and more precarious. So it is this austerity trinity that allows us to see how really austerity is a very intelligent political mechanism to make sure that the majority of us has to accept the condition of low-paid wage workers in precarious conditions while the majority gains benefits from all of our resources. You know, it strikes me also, and I'd be interested in your reaction, that when capitalism has its recurring crashes, downturns, recessions, whatever you call them, that these mechanisms explained as technical adjustments to be made are actually hiding a mechanism to put the burden of the economic crash on the mass of people to save the top 10% from basically having to suffer until we get to the next upswing. And then and only then will the mass of people have a, have a chance up. Let me, let me push you. Um, tell us how you see the link to fascism. You know, the word fascism, the anxiety about fascism has become more explicit, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere as well in the last few years. Since austerity was a big reaction to the downturn in 2008 and 9, are we watching a kind of slow motion process whereby the post-2008 austerity is moving us toward fascism? Is that in some sense what you're arguing? We could definitely explore that direction of the argument, but let's say that the historical analysis I give I think points to a direction that is usually um, not discussed. Uh, what um, what the capital order describes is the fact that the emergence of austerity happened in a moment of extreme contestation of the capital order, a moment in which the majority of the workers, of the people in the hub of Western capitalism at the time, so Britain and Italy after the First World War, were really demanding a different future, were really rethinking the very foundation of how we organize production and distribution through councils, through cooperatives, through calls of economic democracy that would fundamentally overcome wage relations and private property of the means of production altogether. And what you see is that thus austerity becomes visible as a tool of reaction to these calls for economic democracy and ultimately how it still functions today to foreclose alternatives to capitalism. So in this setting, fascism is very interesting because you see that if you look at what Mussolini, so the founding father of fascism, was doing in the 1920s, and what his fellow colleagues were doing in Britain, 
the cradle of liberal capitalism in the same years. What you notice is actually that these um, comfortable binaries that um, contemporaries tend to use, by which, of course, there's liberal capitalist democracy on the one side, and then we have these fascist um, exceptions, which are clearly the opposite of liberalism that emerged historically. Well, this idea that there's such a, that we're talking about polar opposite ideological institutional worlds crumbles if we focus on austerity. And what you actually see is that fascism in Italy strengthened its rule, became legitimate as um an authoritarian government, thanks to its capacity to implement austerity, because this was allowing fascism to look good in the eyes of the liberals, both within Italy and the international liberal elite, people like Montagu Norman at the Bank of England, J.P. Morgan Chase, all the financial world in Britain and the United States in that moment was applauding Mussolini because Mussolini was the most efficient student of austerity, being able to apply privatizations, massive privatization, cuts in wages by decree, cuts in social expenditures, layoffs of the public employees, dear money, all of the austerity trinity package. So I think this is what's interesting, is that the story that the Capital Order tells is a story that has us wonder how distant is supposed liberal capitalism that we pride ourselves with, with respect to these fascist tendencies. Because actually what you see is it's a matter of priorities. So austerity is... Um, advanced and advocated for by all of the economic experts, our mainstream colleagues, uh, as, you know, the, a necessary tool to achieve economic growth and balanced budgets and to tame inflation. But really what you see if you adopt a class analysis lens is that what matters here is something much deeper and something much more essential to preserve the very foundation of the possibility to even have capitalism in place, which is the fact that people cannot try to overcome wage relations. People need to accept their conditions of precarious labor power to be sold on the market. And this is something that is more important than anything, and that also shows how fascism is all about that. Fascism has been about repressing wages, and this has also happened in liberal democracies. Wonderful, Clara. This is really very, very helpful. Uh, we've come to the end of the first half of today's program. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Before we move on, I want to remind everyone that Economic Update is produced by Democracy at Work, a small donor-funded nonprofit media organization celebrating 10 years of producing critical system analysis and visions of a more equitable and democratic world through a variety of media, like the long-form lecture series I host called Global Capitalism designed to help others understand current economic events and trends so they can explain the impact and effects capitalism creates across the globe to others. Global capitalism is available on our website, democracyatwork.info. 
There you can also learn more about everything we produce. Sign up for our mailing list. Follow us on social media and support the work we do. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, uh, to the second half of today's interview with Professor Clara Matei. I want to continue right where we left off. One of your central points had to do with fascism's ability to stave off revolution, to stave off uh, the mentality that says, if a capitalism works this badly, maybe we should change our system. I want to ask you, how do you account for the working classes having accepted in some sense, having tolerated? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but why has this worked as well to keep capitalism going as we've seen it? Or are there exceptions? Are there times, places you could point us to where working classes were not taken in by all of this? It's really interesting because austerity is actually advocated for across party lines. And uh, the biggest act, uh, advocates of austerity have also been supposed uh, labor representatives. So the Labor Party in Britain is a very good case of how austerity has been internalized uh, by uh, representatives of the labor movement themselves. And we have to remind ourselves that in Italy, for example, Enrico Berlinguer, who was actually the head of the Communist Party in the late 70s, was the one to reintroduce austerity in a very um, harsh way, uh, in a moment in which the wage share had got up and workers were again demanding a breakaway from capitalism. So the question you pose is very pertinent is how is it that somehow um, austerity has been so successful in um, becoming kind of a flag that is um, held by even those you would expect. And this is where I think we need to bring into the picture there's so many elements. So I'm just going to point out the elements that uh, I've investigated more, of course, because it's such a complex question. One element that I think needs to be kept in mind is that austerity is about consensus building for the system and that economists, economic experts have played an enormous role in assuring the loss of agency from the people. And so uh, it is... The, Potentially it's because of my professional bias, but I do think that it's very important to point out the political role that economists have played in giving us way of thinking about the world that fundamentally disempower us. So to give you an example, we in the period I was looking at, it was the moment in which, so the early 20th century, it's a moment in which the so-called neoclassical framework, what people still study today when they take an economics course, was being diffused and refined. And guess what? This neoclassical framework is all about refusing the revolutionary elements that were ingrained in the Marxian economic theory that was actually quite popular at the end of the 1800s. So you expel the labor theory of value, which means that you take out the worker from the economic machine and say, no, it's not thanks to the worker that value is being produced. It's actually thanks to the saver investor, to the virtuous individuals who are capable of abstaining and by doing their business, they do the good of the whole. So you go against and you 
antagonism from the view of the world. And moreover, you put at the center stage no more the worker, but the savior investor. So you see that this creates um, this false emancipatory framework is actually the most classist of all because it tells you, well, if you haven't made it to the top, it's because you don't deserve it. So I think this is something that, um, you know, it's in the models now assumed in the models, but it trickled down and it's diffused at all levels of society to the point that we know very well that people in poverty now are ashamed of being poor and think it's their own fault. Well, we very well know that it's because workers are poor given the high level of exploitation, especially right now in the United States. So this element of consensus building needs to be fully explored and the role and responsibility of our colleagues um, needs to be put on the table. And then, of course, there's the element of coercion. I mean, you know, people are people can contest, and there has been moments, I mean, I think even today we are in a moment in which people are trying to really, like, look beyond the trap. But this trap is powerful. It traps us for real in the sense that um, deflation, as we are seeing it today in the United States, is not by accident, and you know this very well because you've discussed this thoroughly in your shows, how increasing interest rates has the purposeful um, objective of cooling down the labor market, which means increasing unemployment rate and getting people to be weaker and thus disempowering people once more. So I think to understand why people have accepted austerity, we really need to think thoroughly the mechanisms that protect our consensus and ultimately like tie our hands also very much materially speaking, once we lose our jobs, we become more market dependent because now you need to pay for school, pay for healthcare, and create this precarious nature that kills away and takes away the time we would need to actually organize and experiment with a different world. Yes, it has proven very difficult for the left in general to get a hearing for, to get a chance to really lay out this alternative. In a way, that's what I see as the power of your book, in the sense that you're teaching those who are economists or who think like economists teach uh, the rest of the population, that there really is a completely different way of organizing the same material to come come to radically different um, conclusions. All right, let me let me push you into an area you may not have gone yet, but you've done the work, so we need to hear your views about this. Would you advise any particular strategies? In other words, does your analysis suggest where? the labor movement or socialist or communist political parties or social movements, where they need to go, what they perhaps need to do differently to be more successful contesting this way the system keeps going. So it can't keep using this almost technological, we're just managing and to expose it for the very one-sided system support that it is. In other words, how do we how do we learn the lessons of your research? How do we? Yes, and this is, I think, uh, important, and um, it's the reason, the very reason why I worked, uh, wrote this book. It's a, a well-researched book coming from the archive, many ten years almost at the archives, 
but it's clearly a book that does not hide its um, its militant um, objective in a way. And I think the whole point here is that the first strategy is to really denaturalize our system and realize that austerity capitalism is the outcome of collective action to foreclose alternatives to capitalism. And thus it can be subverted through collective counteraction. So this already taking history seriously and seeing how our system is actively constructed and how the capital order is constantly protected by the elite, I think has an empowering message in telling us, well, then there, we can construct a different world. And the first step to break away and construct a different world, I think, is to really understand who the enemies are. And in this sense, all of your enemies. So this is why I think one of the learnings from the, for the book, from the book that can be useful for activists and people out there who are interested in changing the world is to realize that, again, let's focus on the fact that austerity capitalism is not very far away from what even the supposed capitalist alternative, meaning Keynesianism, is all about, right? So we have the austerity experts who are right now calling for harsh deflation together with, of course, cuts in the social expenditures um, in favor always of the few creditors investors. But ultimately, if you look at the framework that the Keynesian economists are proposing, we're not that far away. Um, especially in the need to prioritize economic necessities, so for example, stabilizing money right now, um, to the detriment of political social necessities. So I think this is the first big learning, is that if we look at the history of austerity and the history of capitalism, we really realize that we need to think outside of the box and think about the fact that the Keynesian alternative presupposes austerity to begin with because it's an alternative that wants to stabilize wage relations just um, by a different means, but fundamentally when capitalism's existence is in trouble, when people are actually leaving their jobs, the great resignation, this anti-work movement, then it's threatening for the bourgeoisie, also from the, for the Keynesian bourgeoisie, and this is why Keynes himself in the 1920s, he is a protagonist of my book, and I show how Keynes himself had one priority. Way before getting critical of, of his austerity colleagues, he said, no, no, we need to preserve the capital order. So let's make sure that experts keep decision-making in their own hands, and then we can discuss, you know, potential some form of social redistribution. But this happens only after workers have lost their bargaining power uh, with the Great Depression and everything that we know. So I think this is an important element to start uh, get us thinking. And then, of course, last thing I would like to say is that um, inspiration for the past can help us also open up imagination for the future. L'Ordine Nuovo movement, headed by Gramsci, Togliatti, the workers' councils that were growing in 1919, had some ideas of debunking not just bourgeois institutions, but bourgeois worldviews that were extremely empowering with the idea of horizontal relations in the production process, which are things that I think if we look at with like fresh eyes, we can really learn from and associate with a lot of the movements that are still happening right now 
throughout the globe. Yeah, you know, you, you remind me of something a, a, a good teacher of mine once said, uh, was a young woman, and she, she said she's always been struck that in, in modern economics, labor is understood as negative, uh, as we call it, a disutility, that somehow we are supposed to assume that getting together with other people to produce goods and services is horrible, unpleasant, a drag, something we would never do unless we were compensated by an object we can buy in a store. She said that was the greatest insult to human beings she could think of, and completely crazy because the whole point of life might be to make work the joy, the relationship-building opportunity of a person's lifetime given that you're an adult you're five days a week you're there in a way tell me if you agree you're also telling us to rethink the very logic that this is a technical problem we're supposed to forget that what capitalists are about is maximizing their profit and the government policies they support and accept are governed by that principle Absolutely. Absolutely. The fact that we are reduced to passive consumers and that in the economic models, the only option the worker really has is to shift, switch from one job to another. And, you know, um, and decide whether it's better to labor or to have time for leisure really shows us the limits of the anthropological limits. Um, I mean, the, the, yes, the limits that um, these, these concepts have and how they actually have a performative effect in the sense that ultimately, I think, we, it does reduce our existence to an existence that is alienating, non-fulfilling. But I'm really certain that we are in a historical moment in which there are plenty of opportunities to shake ourselves up. And the younger generation that I teach uh, at the New School really makes me uh, proud and excited because I really do see that given what they see around them, the level of criticism, the level of not just buying into um, even, you know, the fake uh, progressive rhetoric that tells us that it's enough to increase the wages so that we can buy an, an extra technology uh, app or like another device that we want. Really, I think we are in an age in which people are getting a sense that we can think bigger and in, in a way that is more um, thought-provoking. Professor Clara Mate, I think with teachers like you, it'll be an easier shot than if we didn't. And I, I'm, I'm really happy to have you as a colleague, and I hope that my audience understands this is a book you ought to take a look at. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Okay. That was, that was uh, in-depth uh, investigation <laughs> at its best. Wonderful, uh, wonderful work. Um, so this is where we bring in fifth dimensional divine government. Well, the stage is being set quite well here. And... Uh, do it with love and compassion and Excalibur and uh, Emerald Serpent Feathered One, Quetzalcoatl, Talking Stick.
that I have here with angels and fairies and feathers and rainbows and crystals and menahunis and Sasquatch and the list goes on. And I'm passing this talking stick to you, Rainbird. Here it comes. Okay, I got it. <laughs> A little heavy with the Bigfoot on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keeping it grounded. That's uh, that's it. That's right. And thank you for tonight. It was good. And we get to do it tomorrow, some more this afternoon. So, looking forward to it. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll do some good night work tonight, too. Who knows? I passed this talking stick over to you, Lava. Here it comes. Tell us what you got for us, honey. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you. <laughs> And thank you for the good lift of Bigfoot. (laughs) Yes. What is it now, honey? This is called Space is Not Nothing. It's Everything. Okay. Oh. What happened? Oh, something. I didn't see the picture on there. That's why I was... Yeah, I'm trying to... Close something out here that popped up. Okay, here we go. Okay. Space may be in some way crossed by floating bodies, by various kinds of electrical vibrations, light waves, cosmic rays, etc. And in most people's minds, space is just nothing. Space is just isn't there. And so, at once one begins to see there's something fishy about space. After all, it is the background against which we see everything. And yet, the funny thing about space is that in a way it doesn't end where a solid begins. And you see immediately that you cannot pin space down. You cannot really conceive space at all. Look at the wonder a child has when it asks questions and begins. What's up there? What's beyond? What's after that? What's after that? The child is absolutely fascinated by thinking about that. But it is against space that we experience everything that we experience. And by the way, also, we experience everything not only in the dimension of space, but also in the dimension of time. And the fascination about space and time is that while they are basic to all possible experiences that we have, you just can't put your finger on them. We could perhaps say that they are pure abstractions. There is no such thing as space and there is no such thing as time. They are merely our way of measuring and thinking about 
the behavior of the physical universe as a pattern, a system of patterns, energy patterns. Space is used in Indian, uh, basic Indian philosophy, in Vedanta, it is called Akasha. And Akasha is for them the fundamental element. There are five elements, earth, water, air, and fire, and Akasha. And so space contains all the other elements. In Buddhist philosophy, where the ultimate reality is called Shunyata, the void, the Chinese will, will translate the Sanskrit Shunyata with their character that means sky or space. The Taoists would say, quoting Lao Tzu, the usefulness of a window is not so much in the frame as in the empty space through which something can be seen. The usefulness of a vase is not so much in the sides made of clay as in the hollow inside into which something can be put. And of course that is a startling metaphor for a Westerner because we think the other way round, you see, as I started out to say, we really think commonsensically that space is nothing at all. And we are much more sympathetic to the idea that it's pure abstraction than to the Oriental idea that space has some kind of basic reality. Painters also are very um, aware of space because especially if you paint in oils, you have to paint your background. And therefore, in filling it in, you begin to realize that it has its own shape. And uh, when you play with photographic negatives or anything that switches uh, back, foreground to background, foreground to background, you begin to become aware of space as having a shape. Because in order to handle the world, you see, you have to touch it rather gently. You mustn't try to pin things down. As they say in Zen, you do not try to drive a nail into the sky. Because that's the beauty of space, you see. It has no, there's nothing in it to hang on. It hasn't a hook to put your hat on, you know, somewhere in space. And yet, it hasn't got a floor to fall onto. If space had a concrete floor on the bottom, it'd be pretty dangerous stuff. But it doesn't. There's nowhere in space to collide with space. You can run into somebody or something else, yes. But not with space. There is a moth flying around me. It's very small. And it will soon run into a candle and extinguish itself. That little incident would not be possible at all, except in the context of all these galaxies. Because they, their existence goes with the possibility of there being such a minute little life fluttering around. What is um, not so easy to see is the picture in the opposite direction, that in the same measure, all these galaxies depend upon and go with this little moth. Anyway, he said, I know that without me, God could not live for one moment. And uh, this is the other aspect of it. 
And this is the difficult one to understand. If you realize that, then you've really got it. You've got the point of your own existence. But to get the reverse picture, you have, first of all, to get clearly its opposite one, namely that the existence of any one minute little thing is intimately related to everything. What happens when you clearly understand that and you've really got that, your mind does a flip. When you find out that all this universe depends on you, some people get frightened, others get cocky. You have to discover that and then be natural. When you want to draw a map of a person's soul, you draw a map of the universe as it was when he was born. We say that is your chart. That expresses uh, you in a special way. Now, the astrologer's maps are very crude. They're based on a rather primitive view of the universe. But the truth of it is there, you see, that who you really are your soul, your mind, is the total universe as focused upon you. That space is you. Because you are equally inaccessible to inspection. What you see outside you and feel outside you is the way you feel inside your skin. You and I are all as much continuous with the physical universe as a wave is continuous with the ocean. The ocean waves and the universe peoples. Our consciousness has been influenced so that each one of us does not feel that. We have been hypnotized, literally hypnotized, into feeling and sensing that we exist only inside our skins. Your skin doesn't separate you from the world. It's a bridge through which the external world flows into you and you flow into it. Oh, and that's the word. Um, do you want to play a little music, Rama? Uh, um, I take too long to... Okay. We'll yeah. say that that's just beautiful. That's the sound of... One hand clapping, I believe. <laughs> so, Rama, inshallah and sat nam. Sat nam ki. Thirteen thank yous, honey, the heart, no weak, evil. And as Rainbird said, we'll see you this afternoon. Aloha, everyone. See you in your dreams and on the bridge. Namaste. <laughs>